eventually I got it. And that was whenever my healing journey really began. And it was the epiphany about not having an epiphany. This this aha moment was you weren't supposed to have an epiphany at the Pacific Ocean on the last day. And you might ask, mm. well, why not? Because I expected for some reason all of the change to happen in the last day. In the last 40 miles of a 2,886-mile bike ride, I expected all of it, all of the change to happen. And in all actuality, I hadn't actually zoomed out at a map of the entire country and been like, Santa Monica is here. The Outer Banks is here. Who was I in the Outer Banks? And who was I whenever I finished? Hmm. Joe Lindley, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we're gonna, of course, we're gonna we're gonna start off in a bit of an unconventional way. So you actually have a card deck with you that we're going to pull from to start off this podcast. So for people listening, could you explain the genesis of this card deck first and how it came to be, and then and then we'll uh, we'll flow into it. Yeah, I will uh, try to as briefly as I can explain the, the genesis of this card deck. Um, so essentially, I started curating a series of questions. Um, the goal being behind these questions that all of them encompass the hero's journey. And if you're not familiar with the hero's journey, the hero's journey is essentially a circle, the top of it being the known world, the bottom and the main portion of the circle being the unknown world. Um, so every story, um, book, fiction, um, and movie that you've seen f loosely follows this monomyth um, that Joseph Campbell, um, the great author, coined. And essentially, this is what it looks like. Um, the hero is called to adventure, finds a mentor, crosses into the unknown. Um, there's a series of trials and tribulations that lead to new skills at the very bottom. Um, there is a death or rebirth, and then on the other side of this death or rebirth, the hero finds revelation, finally changes, atones, and then receives gifts or wisdom, returning back to the same place, a new person. Um, and if you look closely enough, your life also follows this. Um, and it could be one specific hero's journey for your entire life, or it could be a series of many of them. Um, whether that be in a specific friendship or um, a sport that you've played, anything like that. And so all of these questions follow this hero's journey of your life. And this is this card deck has a 54 questions. And it's a way for you to understand not just your own story, but the stories and intrinsic drivers behind the people that you care about the most. Um, so it's a way to understand what people what story people are telling themselves. Um, that way you can better understand and help them with their own story. And ju just so I have it correct. So the hero's journey can encompass your entire life. And then, for example, I played baseball for almost 20 years. There, there would be a specific hero's journey for my baseball career. And then as well as the entire scope of my life. If you look hard enough. Yeah. If you look always. hard enough. Okay. And <laughs> 
And j- for people for people listening right now, this can be found on forwardsmovement.com, correct? Spelled F O U R Forwards like Movement. That, yeah. Yes, keep moving um, forwards, and we're and we're gonna get into the genesis of the the company and and everything in a little bit. But I thought this would be a fun way to start off the podcast. So, without further ado, why don't you pull us a card, and we'll try to answer it as best we can. So, normally on um, the ride, we would essentially <laughs> I would take this deck of cards. Mm. Originally, it was just a bicycle deck um, that we'd written the questions on, and we would. Uh, fan the deck out to the person or stranger and say, hey, will you draw a question so that we can answer these um, or get your answer to this? And if you don't like it, you can draw another one. So the cool thing about Mm. that was it would give them power of like, I can choose, even though this is the question I drew, I can choose to draw another one if I'm not comfortable with it because there are some deep ones in here. Um, They're they're tiered in a way, uh, which we can get to later. But essentially... I'm gonna. <laughs> I was gonna try and yeah. get you to point one out, but um, I think yeah, we'll you just... can feel my. I'm trying to <laughs> transmit my energy through Riverside through the signals, exactly. and hopefully you can feel it in the cards. So we just drew the Four of Earth. Um, I'm not sure if you can see this. Four of Earth. It's a a little bit small. Would you mind reading it out loud? Yes. Uh, what is your favorite movie and why? What is my that's favorite the, movie and why? It's a hard one if you haven't thought about your favorite movie. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm going to I'm going to think of my favorite movie in the moment cuz I guess that all there all all there ever is. I'm going to have thousands of favorite movies throughout my life, but my favorite movie right now, my favorite movie. I do you, do you have one in mind? Do you have I have for one myself? that's like yeah, do you have one in mind for yourself? So after making all of these questions, um, yeah. <laughs> essentially I've had to pick apart and find the answers to most of the questions. So I have a list of you know three to five movies. One of them, by far, my favorite movie of all time is *A Knight's Tale* with Heath Ledger. Um, *Knight's Tale*. That's a that's a good one. It is just the best cinema experience because it has Queen, it has classic rock in it. It's about knights and jousting. Um, there's a beautiful woman in it, and then there's a ton of um, underlying metaphors and uh, motifs, and like we could get into that. Um, but essentially, one of the reasons it's my favorite is because of the process of naming and the coming of age mm. within it. And so, uh, essentially, uh, William Thatcher is a mm. the son of a Thatcher, a Ruth Thatcher, and he wants to become mm. a knight. He asks his father if there's a way to change his stars. And his father says, if you work hard enough, you can change your stars. Um, You can change your destiny. And so his father actually ends up sending him off with a knight um, whenever he's about eight. And he doesn't see his father for, I think it's something like uh, 15 or 20 years. And it fast forwards that far. And he's still um, the squire to a knight. The knight dies. Um, I'm not going to spoil all of it, but essentially he ends up going by a different name and becoming a knight, um, one of the most well-renowned knights in in England, um, and going by a different name in order to get there. And so it's a concept behind, you know, um, 
embracing yourself, embracing your name, um, and becoming within that, that I really, really enjoy. And I actually experimented with that concept a little bit this past summer um, and had that coming of age on the bike ride and named my bicycle. Um, I rode on a horse with no name um, almost all the way across the country until I was finally like, I know the name of my bike now. And it's Jocelyn, there which you go. is the, the female in A Knight's Tale. And I just love that name. It's actually not my bike still. Um, it's my friend's mom's bike, but um, her name is Jocelyn now. So um, it shows up in my life a lot, but really, really enjoy that movie. Tend to look for meaning in just about everything, probably too much to a fault sometimes, but mm. um, definitely my, my favorite movie. You talking about your favorite movie sparked my favorite movie and also also gave me some some more time to think so i used you as an out so i could give a i could give a better answer ex, ex, you gotta Perfect. exploit your guests that's the one of the <laughs> best rules of podcasting. if you want to be a successful healthy podcaster just exploit all of your guests you know emotionally physically and financially that's the the key to a successful <laughs> podcast um Absolutely. so while you <laughs> while you were buying time I realized my favorite movie is The Disaster Artist with James Franco and Dave Franco. So I've seen this movie, I've seen this movie many times and I may also be suffering from recency bias cuz the last time I saw it was was not that long ago. But for those who haven't seen the movie, The Disaster Artist is about the making of a the cult classic titled The Room and this guy who is rich and he's somewhere in the Eastern European realm, no one really knows exactly what his background is. He comes to America, makes his way out to LA. Who's any, this guy, this kind of shady rich character, Eastern Slavic guy, uh, makes his way to LA, played by James Franco, and then meets up with another aspiring actor who's played by Dave Franco and, and their brothers, which is also why it's one of my favorite movies, because rarely do you have a, a license to step outside of your role as being a brother and just be someone completely different towards your own brother and acting in a movie is one of those licenses where you're like, I don't have to treat you like my brother because we're getting paid not to. So I can, you know, do whatever I want. But this this guy makes what he thinks is going to be the greatest movie of all time. He's very cocky. He's arrogant. He has the budget for it. He hasn't listened to what anyone says. And the movie ends up being great, but not for the reason that this guy thought. It ended up being great because it was so bad that it was good. It was funny. There were all these moments throughout the film where he's being super serious, you know, in his own mind, he probably thinks he's Robert De Niro and he's nailing all his lines and his timing is perfect. And it ends up becoming this cult classic because it's so fucking bad. Like it, it, it really is a disaster and the disaster is what makes it entertaining. And for that, it, it's just a, the, the disaster artist is a great movie to watch for that reason, because it's kind of the, this interesting fictional slash biopic about the whole making of this film. And the other reason why I love this movie is because James Franco's character 
basically doesn't have that part of your brain that makes you aware that other people are watching you and judging you, which I feel like is a superpower. And there's there's this one scene in the movie in the beginning where everyone's in this improv class, act, typical acting gig in LA where you take a class, everyone's trying to make it, you're working through other jobs. And Dave Franco goes up and he's this kind of reserved, chill guy and barely saying his lines. And then James Franco comes on stage and he's the the guy with no origin that's in the acting class that ends up making The Room. And he just starts wailing on stage and screaming. And he's like, ah, ah, and like no one knows what he's doing. And he just starts climbing up a ladder, falls off the ladder and then just like starts proclaiming his love to the other girl on stage who has no idea what's going on. And I wish I could flip that side of my brain off with a switch sometimes where you're just like, it's not that you're trying not to care what other people think. It's like that circuitry doesn't even exist in your brain. You're just walking through life doing that. So for those two reasons, uh, and there's a bunch of other little things too, that's the the disaster artist right now is my favorite movie. I, I could watch that movie for 24 hours straight and, still not be entirely bored of it <laughs> i did not hit her it's not true it's bullshit i did not hit her i did not oh hi mark <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah and, and that's, uh, that's that's one of the, no, go, the go coolest ahead. the coolest things about you know these questions is um you know what is your favorite movie is a very simple thing a uh, very simple question that seems to not have a whole lot of meaning behind it, but it's one of those things that can get you animated. It can get you excited. It's You've clearly seen it many, many times. Um, I'm sure you know some of the quotes from it as well. And yeah. If, yeah. if you look deeper into your answer behind the question, it's, oh, well, there's actually an element of this movie that I want to embrace myself. You know, it could be the mm. funniest, most ridiculous out there movie like The Disaster Artist. But if you look close enough, there's there's something that you strive for within it and within your own story. Um, and so that's why we have this question within the deck. So we want to get you excited about stories and storytelling and and even, you know, bring this story and present it to me in a way that is also based on you. Um, yeah, so I, really, I, I love I, I love the idea of the deck, too, because it's literally having an icebreaker in your pocket. I'm sure you've pulled it out many times and ask strangers to draw cards and usually it, when i'm playing with a deck of cards it's a special occasion I've, I've used uh i used a deck of cards called the honest dating game for many zoom quarantine awkward dates where i'm like we need to throw something in here so we don't both want to shoot ourselves in the face so i'm going to pull this deck out but it but it's but it's really it it's it really is a great thing to have especially solo traveling and and you know for what you did which we're going to get into which is you biked and cross the entire country of the united states yeah <laughs> it was um it was a pretty crazy experience and just to wrap up with the cards real quick so you have mm. people have more of a general idea yeah um it's a regular deck of cards um with four suits uh 13 i believe um within each suit um, instead of the normal suits being, you know, diamonds, 
spades, clubs, and hearts. It's actually the four elements, um, air, earth, fire, and water, which is where we get mm. the four and forwards from to represent our roots in the outdoors. And so with that, um, that's a pretty pretty basic intro to it. And then the jokers as well represent death to remind you and anyone else playing that your story does have an end. So whatever it is that you're, whatever story it is that you're trying to tell or you wish to tell, um, remind to do it now um, and start as soon as you can. Yeah, it's uh, so there's no punishment for not answering a card, no sort of physical challenge or anything like that. You, you could get out of it if you really don't want to answer a question. There's no there's no uh, there's no punishment. We don't want to um, make no, people no BDSM. feel pressured. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like there's yeah. no, we don't want, we don't have pressure. We don't want people to be uncomfortable. Um, this game of vulnerability and transparency and sharing your story and relating to others is a journey that you have to decide to join. Um, you can't be forced in order to actually get something out of it. And so that's what we want people to, yeah. um, to realize. Yeah, that makes sense. And so speaking of being able to turn off that part of your brain where people are judging you or, or thinking about you you biked across america last summer and that certainly calls for going outside of the normal structure of what people consider i don't know if acceptable is the right word or just normal or uh something that is sensible to spend months of your life doing and i think it's fucking awesome and I had a great time going through your posts and learning a, through that small window uh, just a bit about what you did. But but I wanted to ask you, what drove you to ride nearly 3,000 miles across the United States? What, what was the, st before you even started doing it, what was the start of the, the spark inside you that made you want to do that? Well, first of all, it still sounds surreal. Um, the, the further out that I get from the completion of it, the more that it's just like, I can, I can look at it from a third party perspective and be like, that's just kind of crazy, um, that you did that. Yeah. So it's still kind of hard for me to grasp as I, as I edit everything. But, um, yeah, I am, I am that third party. I can assure you it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> within this, within this challenge. Um, one of the things that I love doing is learning by doing. Um, it is my favorite thing to do. I love the art of going from having no idea what you're doing to one second. My whoop, oh, you're good. My whoop is going off. Um, to you're going good. to having no idea what you're doing to going to second nature. Um, so with this, with this bike, we knew we needed to do something to help other people. Um, we wanted to do that in a very grandiose way and tell a story. Um, I love storytelling. I love activity. Um, I love challenges. And so we just kind of thought of the, the craziest thing. Um, you know, I, I briefly mentioned it on a call with one of my mentors and she was like, uh, you need to do something, something to get people's attention. And I was like, what, like ride a bike across the country? And she was like, yeah. I was like, did I just sign yeah, myself Yeah, that's up? good. <laughs> Did I, did I just sign myself up to ride a bike across the country? And she's like, yeah, you're not getting out of it. And so the, the birth of it started there. Um, and I'd never, I grew up on bicycles. You know, I, I knew how to ride a bike, but I'd never, I wasn't a cyclist. Um, mm. And so 
this was in March of last year, like late March. Um, for uh, perspective, we started the ride on June 15th. Um, so I'd never ridden an actual road bike and then I guess had to figure out a way. Uh, so four months, about or less than four months from riding a bike on a regular basis, you took off on this journey. Yes. Um, it went that's, from that's an insane. idea to, okay, let's, uh, let's figure this out. And it was very stressful, um, to try and, you know, find a bike. So I found my, one of my best friends, Patrick, um, he's the one who drove the van and did the photography and most of the videography before the trip. Um, his dad is a cyclist. And so I was like, Hey, do y'all have any extra bikes I could use? And it was his mom, um, had an extra yeah. bike. Um, so I rode his, his mom's bike. Thank you, Kelly. Um, his mom's bike across the country um, and clipped in for the first time about two months before the ride and then just started getting into it. And the goal with this was, you know, people originally, people think whatever it is they want to try or whatever it is they want to do, there's so much bigger barrier to entry. Um, they're like, well, I would love to do that, but I don't know this or that or have someone else who knows how to do this. And it's just like, there's so many excuses of getting in the mm. door and let me show you one of the craziest things that you could possibly ever like one of them that you could possibly think about ever doing is just i'm gonna ride a bike across the country but i'm not a cyclist um mm. let me show you how easy it is to just hop on start doing fall over a couple times and trust me i did i forgot that you know as a normal bike you can just take your foot off the pedal with these bikes you have to unclip um, so many times mm -hmm. I came to a stop and fell over on my side. That's just kind of a part of learning. Um, so you're going to fall a lot, um, but it's a matter of learning to get back up. It's a matter of, you know, being willing to look like a fool and to be a beginner. That's part of the fun of it as well. So if people can realize that learning is a process and it's going to look like that, and eventually you'll be, um, a master if you would like to be, we wanted to show them what entering um, this door looked like, um, with something so extreme. Yeah. And, and it's weird. I, I feel like we, I mean, not, I feel like we do live in a world with so many artificial barriers and these qualifications that it seems like you need, but if you break it down, they're 99.9% .9 of things you don't actually need to spend four years in school or get some sort of certificate. You can just start doing it and and riding and learn and make the the journey your degree in a sense and i'm trying to like like besides there are a bunch of things that you need degrees for and obviously you need to go to school and practice and become good at things like becoming a medical doctor or anything where you're directly influencing the health of someone else besides yourself you should you should probably have a degree for some sort of certification but for most things a lot of the and for me the the biggest way and the the most effective way that i've learned something is through just doing it and stopping this planning process in my brain or this this voice in the back of my head that tells me I need some sort of check checkpoint, like go down this list before I start doing it. That may take me an extra year and a half where I could just start doing it in two weeks if I really wanted to. So the journey that you took on your bike speaks to that 
to an extreme extent where you did say just right off the top of my head, if someone said, how long should you train to bike across the fucking United States? I would say year and a half easy like mid <laughs> two years like like i would I, it, it, I would say right now if i started training i would probably do it sometime in like 2024 if, if i uh if that was my goal and you did it in less than four months of starting so where where does that come from like did, did you always have a sense of not needing the affirmation of, of someone else or, or not following the typical path of preparation? Like, is that something you've always had or was this bike journey kind of the, the start of that? It was, it was definitely the beginning. Um, <laughs> it was definitely at least part of the beginning. So last year, 2021 began after a tough breakup um, with someone who I adore but I needed some sort of change. And this acted as a catalyst to start challenging myself to be the best version of myself that I could. And so at the beginning of January, I started this challenge called 75 Hard. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but for the people that are not, it is 75 day challenge. And every single day, there's a series of challenges that you have to check off. If you miss even one, then you start over. So the challenges, and I'll probably forget one because um, it's been a while, but our two workouts a day, one has to be outside, uh, 45 minutes, um, drink a gallon of water, take a progress picture, no cheat meals or alcohol, um, and read 10 pages in a nonfiction book. And so it doesn't really sound like a whole lot. The workouts probably do. Um but I started doing this and it's, you know, it's named 75 hard. It was a goal. The goal with me was to do something difficult to create discipline um, because I felt like I needed an element of discipline in my life. And so I did this challenge and I completed it. And but before I completed it, I got about halfway. I was like, you know, I'm doing all these outdoor workouts and walking turned to jogging turned to running. And I got you know, kind of good at running. And so I was like, I think I want to run a marathon. Um, and so I yeah. signed up for a marathon one month out, which was, I don't recommend that to anyone. Um, <laughs> always, always yeah. give yourself more than one month. Um, but the goal was, okay, this is my first hard thing um, that I want to do to complete. And so I signed up for a marathon one month, did four long runs. I'd never run more than six and a half miles in one stint and then slowly ramped that up. And then the day of the marathon, I wrote, uh, 26 names on my arm and every single mile I called that person that's had a major impact in my life, which made it very symbolic and a whole lot easier to get through it. Um, I was leaning on other people that had helped me throughout my life and wanted to call and give gratitude to them. Um, got pretty emotional for some of them, you know, because the endorphins are running and <clears throat> the endorphins are running and you know, it's, you're on the phone with someone who's made a major impact in your life. Mm. And so I ran this marathon and completed it. And my goal was to not stop or not walk going into, or my goal was to not walk, um, mm. which I was in so much pain by mile 22, 23. I'd never experienced this level of complete physical exhaustion that I made a pact with myself that I could stop, but I couldn't walk. So I could, I could mm. jog. And if I needed to, if I was in so much pain, I could stop and stretch out real quick for, you know, 10, 15 seconds. But 
then I had to start running again. There was no walking involved. So I thought you were going to say, about... uh, I thought you were going to say, take a lime scooter. I can't walk, <laughs> but if, but if I see a scooter, I'm just going to swipe out. It. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me about four hours and 47 minutes, um, which is not an impressive marathon time, but I was able to complete it. And from there, 75 hard was still underway. And so I kept going and I was like, man, I can do hard things. Um, I really enjoy doing hard things, actually. And with this marathon, I realized that it broke me down. It just totally, you know, I was completely fresh at the end of it in sense of spiritual. And so mm. I was like, okay, if I can do these hard endurance things, then they can break me down so that on the other side, I can start filling these gaps and building myself back stronger. Mm. Um, and so that's whenever I was like, okay, well, maybe I should do something kind of crazy endurance and create a story and the, you know, the creativity started flowing and that's whenever we came up with the ride. Um, and so I was like, this is going to be my hard thing. I'm in, in some of the best shape of my life right now. So why wouldn't I leverage this um, in order to complete something? Um, it's definitely mm. like I was definitely in good shape, but I had also read articles online. Never hesitate. Look up things that you want to do. Because people are like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. like I, I, I did a bike ride across the country. I was really out of shape. I'm like, okay, if you were out of shape and I feel in pretty good shape, then I feel like we can probably make this happen. Um, and then I read one article that was, um, you know, I didn't train for this at all um, for a bike ride across the country. is what someone else said. I didn't train for this at all. It would have been more comfortable if I had, but I was able to do it. So I was like, okay, that's enough. You know, I, I can train for, for two months or a month yeah. and a half and go into this. And right before I went into it, someone, one of my friends actually came into my life that I'd never met before. I was sitting in the sauna at the gym and this guy's like talking about how he's biking across the country this summer. I'm like, I've never met a single person that has ever biked across the country. His name's Peyton. Um, shout out mm. Peyton. You're a great guy. You gave me the confidence within myself and he had actually done it before. Um, this was his second or third time doing it. And wow. so I, I started asking him for advice and he gave me a couple things to, to think about going into it. Um, I wish he would have warned me about the post ride depression. Um, that was the most, that was actually the hardest part about the entire ride um, was not the ride itself, but the, the fallout afterwards. Um, we can get into that as well. P PR, PRSD, post ride stress yeah. disorder. Yes. I mean, you're yeah. essentially what it looks like is your body um, adapts to running on endorphins, you know, a 60 mm. to 80 mile bike ride every single day for two months. Um, so you don't mm. really need do dopamine release from anything else. Um, you get it, uh, from the endorphins and then you stop suddenly and there's not that dopamine release to give you those happiness chemicals. And so the things that once excited you no longer really excite you. Um, and that how, was pretty, how did, <laughs> how, how did it feel to, to get those endorphins early on when you first started? Cause I don't think I've ever, like people talk about runner's high or, or any type of high from doing cardio for a long period of time. And it may just be because I've never done it long enough to feel some sort of high. But I mean, I've convinced myself after like five or six miles, I'm like, this is it. And then at two minutes later, I'm like, no, this is not it. This is just, uh, <laughs> me being hungry um but like what what is an actual high like from doing long distance cardio of some sort what does that feel like 
So with what you just said, I had never, I had, I had thought I had gotten there. Um, I had thought maybe this is runner's high, you know, maybe this is what it feels like. The first time I ever got um, the runner's high was training for the marathon. I ran a 16 mile run. I mm. never run over 10 miles. And at mile 11, I said, without a doubt, this is it. You go from being like, oh my gosh, I'm dragging my feet. Why do I have to run this far? To suddenly, it is no longer hard. Your body kicks in and says, this is what we're doing, I guess. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. So we're going to make it fun. And you get this, it's like a lightness about you, um, mm. where it's almost like having an epiphany. Um, and it's just like everything, everything makes sense. Um, and then just suddenly you start smiling and you're running down the street and you're 11 and a half yeah. miles in. You're like, I don't really know why I'm enjoying this. I uh, thought it was a hoax. I thought it was a myth. Um, that mileage looks different for every single person. And so really the only way to find it is to, is to really push those miles, um, and find it for the first time. But once you do, once you find runner's high for the first time, I promise it is very hard to stop running. Yeah. So, so around 11 miles, the 11 mile high club was the first time you felt it. That was me. You know, some people could potentially yeah. be 13. Um, it could be, it could be six, but now for me, I can get a runner's high at about six miles is where it, where it starts generally because my body's like, Oh, it's, we're used to doing this. We need this endorphin release to make it easier. Yeah. Um, and so you can, you can lower that number. It's not always going to be that high, as high as 11. Um, but to feel yeah. it for the first time, you got to push it. It's like the first couple of times I smoked weed, I'm, I'm thinking I'm doing it right. <laughs> and I'm like trying I'm, I'm like, nothing is happening. I'm like trying to see the leaves change on a tree. I remember I was literally in Martinsville, Virginia playing summer baseball and I smoked weed for the first time. And I saw leaves move on a tree on the back porch with a couple of my friends. And I was like, I guess this is what it's like to be high. You just, you know, you see things move in nature and then i'm like well that happens anyway when i'm not high so maybe i didn't get high and then later that summer i was like nope that's that i was not high that time this is this is definitely being high so i i guess i just have to <laughs> i have to do it longer and do it more yeah. uh do it the correct way yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. So just just push those miles and eventually you'll find that high and it's going to feel different than what you were expecting. Same way with, uh, smoking, you know, it's going yeah. to feel different, but it's, it's better. It's better than what you could have expected. Does it ever get overwhelming to the point where it's not pleasurable anymore? Like you're just like, wow, this is much more intense than I was expecting. Uh, there's definitely a degree where I wouldn't say it's, it's, um, not pleasant, but I would say it gets emotional to the point where you can be pushed over a ledge of, of, of crying. Um, I have, mm. I have cried while running. That's, and I, that's probably where I made the realization of this really does break me down in a way that I can build myself stronger from because it's not crying in a sense of I'm sad. It's crying in a sense of gratitude. Like look at this crazy life that I'm living. And it happened on the bike a lot because I've, you know, every once in a while I'll snap back to reality and the concept of, of what I was doing. And being mm. like, I'm riding a bicycle across a continent. One of my best friends is trusting me enough to follow me in a van that we didn't have until three days prior to the ride. We had nowhere to stay, nowhere to, you know, put our things for the ride. We thought we were going to be yeah. renting a U-Haul. 
And so all those things kind of come into perspective. And so it can get overwhelming um, mm. to the point where you don't really know what to do with it. You're happy. You're, you're crying. You're, you know, grateful. You're, you know, missing people, that kind of thing. But I would, I would never say that I've had a long distance endurance endorphin high that has been one that I've regretted and been like, dang, I, I was a little too much. I don't, I don't really, yeah. really want that. But also I've done a yeah. lot of practice, like gratitude practice to appreciate those kind of moments and take them in and embrace them. So maybe for some people, um, but I think the really true gratitude started with the runner's high. Yeah. Um, so, so to go back a little bit, you mentioned you found the van about three days before the trip. What were those, what, what was that week like leading up to at the actual start of it? Like getting the van, what, what was on the inside of the van? How are you preparing for it? You know, physically, mentally, who went with you? How did that work? Like following along or did he just drive ahead and you met him there? Like how, how did that whole planning work the week of and getting to that point where you finally got on the bike? So we did, um, we did a fundraiser with a lot of our closest friends in Austin within the fitness community at um, our one of my best friends MSW nutrition um, we did a they did my blood work um, to make sure I was healthy um, they wanted to make sure I had no underlying pre-existing conditions that I was unaware of which mm. is super crucial you know for the state of just at least knowing that you know everything that could happen from here on, could make a difference, but we didn't want anything to happen to where I made myself diabetic to where I, you know, had some sort of blood sugar anomaly mm. that made me pass out in the middle of the desert. So there was a lot of mm. um, preparing that went into knowing they put me on vitamins. They, uh, we fundraised to make this happen. Um, the week prior, we didn't have a lot of things figured out. You know, we'd figured out the route, at least so we thought um, it was only about we only followed it about 50%, maybe, because we had to constantly fly by the seat of our pants. Oh, this is actually a dirt road or a gravel road or um, mud um, within the bike yeah. ride. So we had to constantly be figuring that out. But the week prior, we had no van. <clears throat> we knew that we were going to live out of something. Patrick was going to follow me in the van, uh, take photos, and we had no van. Um, in my head, I'm a radical optimist which is an incredible quality sometimes and sometimes it's a terrible quality um <laughs> patrick is also an optimist but more so a realist <laughs> and so mm. you know it's it's seven days before the ride it's six days before the ride it's five days before the ride and we have no van or thing to live out of for two months and yeah. i'm like it'll figure it's it'll figure itself out like we'll figure it out and patrick's like yeah but but what if we, <laughs> but what if it doesn't? And I'm like, you don't have to think that way. Like it will, it will. And then I'm like, okay, fine. Like to make you happy, I'll figure this out. I'll, I'll see what I can do. And so I remember one of the things in my life that I've started doing is following synchronicity. Um, whenever I hear something and it kind of piques my interest, I'll store it away and see if it comes back to the surface later. So back from a technical difficulty, which, uh, I'm sure you had many on the the bike. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so so you were talking about a fraternity brother that you had yeah. in college. This is leading up to the bike ride. Okay, um, my fraternity. I remember 
I remember that my fraternity brother, Jay Milstead, his girlfriend worked for some sort of van rental company. Um, it's called mm. Outdoorsy. And so I was like, maybe I should, maybe I should check that avenue. And so I messaged him and got Lexi's contact information. And I was like, hey, Lexi, like I heard that you work for Outdoorsy, which is one of the biggest um, van rental companies in the country. Essentially what it is, like the Airbnb of van rental, right? So it's privately oh, owned, wow. but they rent out their vans. So I could buy a van, totally convert it. And then let's say I'm not using it. I could rent it out to someone who wants to go take a trip. Um, and so we reached out to them trying to find a van. We'd found one. Um, Vanessa Van Halen was the name of the van. Um, pun intended. Vanessa Van Halen. <laughs> v- Vanessa Van Halen. Oh, Vanessa. Um, <laughs> Vanessa Van Halen. Love it. Right. Love so it. We'd, we'd found it, but it was pretty expensive. And so I reached out to Lexi. And I was like, hey, is there any way that Outdoorsy wants to be a part of this? And they ended up being like, yeah, this sounds like a great opportunity for us. We would love to help you with your trip. And so they sponsored the van um, for about half of it. And so that made made the whole van situation possible. And so two days before the ride, we had a van. Um, wow. And we all made it happen. And everything came together just right whenever it was supposed to and when it needed to. And so the day of, I went and picked up the van in Austin, just down the corner from my house or around the corner from my house, and then drove to Dallas to pick up Patrick, um, loaded the bike up, loaded my dog Atlas up. He was going to be our third um, on the ride because we needed some sort of company. I knew Patrick did, and I got Atlas and named him Atlas because I wanted to travel with him. And so Atlas and I took off for Dallas and picked up Patrick, and we loaded the van up over a couple hours, got everything put in place. You know, Everything had its place throughout the whole ride. Um, the cooler goes here, the supplements go here in this drawer, um, the chamois butter goes in this drawer, which is what you put, you know, between your legs to keep yourself from chafing. Um, yeah. I would not have been able to survive without chamois butter, uh, throughout all of the Sh- armpit of the U S <laughs> yeah. So ba- basically it, uh, what you just rub it on your thighs or wherever, and it makes everything go more smoothly down there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a slippery it stays slippery and it has menthol in it too. So you get a nice little, nice little bite to it um, so that you know it's working Um, and took off for Dallas. And then whenever we left Dallas, Patrick was like, okay, well we can go the North route to the Outer Banks, North Carolina, um, which will be the exact same route that we bike, or we can go the Southern Mm -hmm. route and take a different route and uh, have everything be a total, um, surprise whenever we see it. Mm. Um, so we kind of did the pros and cons and we were like, honestly, the pros and cons are kind of the same. You know, if we take the North route, then yeah. we'll be seeing the same thing we'll be seeing all the way through, but also it'll give us an idea of what we're riding through. So that's a pro and a con with the Southern route. It's like, Oh, we'll see something else, but also everything else is going to be completely unknown. And so this is whenever we brought in the concept of flipping a coin. Um, whenever we mm. couldn't make a decision, it was like, we don't, need to waste time trying to argue for a couple minutes or debate for a couple minutes on what we want to do because we don't care um if we truly don't care let's flip a coin so we flipped the coin it took us the northern route we drove the same route all the way to the outer banks that we rode out of obviously we rode on highways instead of back roads um to get there um but this so this theme happened for the first time that over the course of two months 
every time we were like, I don't really care. Let's make a decision. Do we want to stay here or there? We'd flip a coin on it. And uh, with this fortune, yeah, um, we began. The, the coin trip. flip comes. Coin flip comes in handy. Uh, fun fact: I just learned on a podcast that Portland, Oregon, was almost named Boston because when Lewis and Clark were exploring, one I forget which one was from where, but one was from Portland, Maine, and the other one was from Boston, Massachusetts, and they wanted to name. Portland, Oregon after their own hometown. So they couldn't decide. So they just flipped a coin and <laughs> now Portland, Oregon is Portland, but it could have been Boston, Oregon if it, huh. if it just landed on heads or tails. Yeah. And, and just, just simply the chance. <laughs> yeah. Simply the chance and an entire city. I, I don't know. It would have been funny if they were just going through the entire country, just naming cities that way. Like, I, this is my choice. This is your choice. Like, Let's just flip, and the entire country is just based on chance. I mean, heck, it's it's not much different yeah. sometimes than just yeah. choosing. Yeah. So, so once you decided on the route, which you mentioned was from Outer Banks, and then you ended up uh, California, I guess, w- West Coast, somewhere, Santa, somewhere in SoCal. Yeah, Santa Monica. Santa Monica. So, why go? east to west did you ever think about going west to east is that something Um, people do (laughs) so i like i said earlier about uh, giving too much meaning to things um with within this documentary for mental health awareness it's an allegory of my life as well um yeah so i started in the outer banks on the east coast because i grew up going to the outer banks um mm. and i finished in santa monica this is why i was biased towards going east to west yeah I finished okay in santa monica because in college i went to texas a&m whenever we founded forwards and took this road trip from college station to uh san francisco and back over spring break through all the national parks we were on santa monica we were in santa monica on the pier and i was with three of my best friends at that point in time i was purposely trying to fail out of college um, I hated it. Purposely hated trying to fail the- out of college. Yes. I I could have I could have <laughs> helped you there. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it wasn't like, oh, like I'm failing out next week. It was really more of like, I just don't care. Like I know what's gonna happen. Yeah. Um, I school is not for me. I hate having this ceiling above my head where, you know, it's I can only get as far ahead as the next test, you know. I can't I can yeah. study all of this stuff, but like I'm stuck here, I'm stuck here, I can't I can't push through this wall. And so I was purposely trying to fail out. And on the pier of Santa Monica, I got an email from Texas A&M and they were like, hey, just want to let you know, like the thing you're trying to do, it's happening um, unless you get your GPA up before the end of the semester, like you're gone. Hmm. Um, and that's whenever I had this aha moment. I'm surrounded by three of my best friends whom I met at A&M and through A&M. I'm taking this incredible life changing trip with these guys. And I'm like, maybe there's more to school than school. Maybe I'm looking at this the yeah. wrong way. <clears throat> so this is whenever I had this kind of epiphonic, if that's even a word, epiphany, um, where I was like, okay, maybe maybe I should just get my shit together. Maybe I should try and graduate. And from there, I went home. You know, it wasn't easy. It's not like I was immediately like a zero student to an A student. I still had to try and find that motivation constantly to do things that I didn't want to do. And I guess this is where the hard part of me chasing hard things started. But I was like, I can find more out of school than just the grades, just the tests. And so from there, I started leveraging connections with my teachers and my professors 
um, and really, really enjoying um, school more so than just like, yes, this sucks. I don't want to study for this test. Yeah. I have to grind for this paper, but there's so much more to it. So we chose the yeah. ride as east, east to west to represent my struggles with mental health. Um, and this trip that we took across the country was one of the first trips that really gave me that that reason for being, that sense of purpose within forwards to allow others and share this message with other people. Um, so yeah. that's why I went east to west. I wish that I would have thought about it a little bit more um, because the degree I ended up getting <clears throat> from Texas A&M was geographic information science, GIS. Um, mm. So you'd think I would be better with geography and maps and all this stuff. And I love it. And I am, but I didn't think about the east to west route. Um, there's a reason people go west to east always on a bike across America. And it's because the way the earth rotates, you get a tailwind. Mm. If you go the opposite way, you get a headwind. And so all oh, but wow. three of the days, all but three of the 55 days of riding were a headwind of 10 miles See? an hour or more. You, you, you just have this force going against you the entire time. And if you go west to east, it's literally like someone's pushing you a little. I mean, not right. like literally pushing you, but I'm sure it makes a, a huge difference. And and I just wanted to say, I've, I've found it hilarious when you said I'm trying to fail out of college. But now that I'm thinking about it, like it, it actually is, depending on the class, very difficult to fail. Because I'm thinking back on my college career towards the end where I literally wasn't showing up to class. I was never in danger of failing overall. Like my, my overall GPA was like somewhere in the low threes when I ended up. So I was never in danger of being asked to leave the school. But there were a few classes where I just wasn't showing up. I was getting legit 40s and 50s on all the tests or quizzes, whatever it was. My baseball career was on the severe downturn after a couple elbow surgeries. So I was also just pretty emotionally low and, and not really sure what I was going to do with my life. And at the end of the semester, my grades turned for, for a couple classes literally was a negotiation with my teacher where they're like, you're you have a 47 right now in accounting, which is your major like. I'll give you a C if you do this. I'm just like, okay. And <laughs> they like, like it seems like it, they, there's probably something about failing a class where it's just a lot of paperwork or it probably becomes more of a big deal for them to fail someone or maybe it, ju it just also doesn't look good for the college. So it's not, they're, they're not incentivized to, to fail people. And I had a lot of great professors, I had a lot of really cool and, and meaningful connections with, some professors that I still speak to today. So it, I think it points more towards how the system of universities is somewhat of a scam that it's for d depending on what the course is, it can, you can actually like can't fail. Like it, it's, it's, it's built into, yeah. Even if you get a 25 on all your tests, you're still going to get a C and they'll just move you through. So it's, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you've failed your way out of college, you might have had to try harder than me to get a 3.3 <laughs> GPA. <laughs> you um, might be a harder <laughs> worker than me. 
<laughs> yeah, you were trying really good hard. Chance. Good chance. Like I'd you hire you some, for sure. You had some good teachers. You had some good professors. If they were willing to bring you in there and say, "Hey, if you do this, then you'll get a C." Like that's that's good stuff. That's what definitely I definitely was, was not all of them. Right. Definitely was not all of them, but some of them. It was more like I know you don't know this material, but here's you know if if you if you get this or you you do this on the next two quizzes, whatever you do, this extra credit assignment, like you're not going to fail the class. You might get a D or a C, but it's, it's just, it, it became somewhat of a negotiation towards the end where we both knew what we wanted. Like, I'm not going to do this for a career. I'm this professor, you know, knows that I'm just trying to get through. And then they're like, all right, like we'll give you, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll squeeze you through the window. How nice. <laughs> Hundred percent. So, walk walk me through the the first week on this trip, getting used to biking. You said sixty to eighty miles a day, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Like, what was that initial adjustment period like? A week into this trip. Um. So I'd never biked over fifty miles until the weekend before the ride. Um. And then I biked my first 50 miles with my friend Andrew, um, who was also a great mentor in Austin to get me into cycling and show me the routes around Austin. But the first day of the ride, you know, we woke up um, for this documentary. I was in the Outer Banks to see my grandparents who have a house there. My grandfather was suffering um, or still is suffering from Alzheimer's. And so that's all taken a turn in the past year. So, you know, within the mental health motif, um, Mm. we got up, we went to bed at probably... I went to bed at four in the morning, um, just around four, because we got to the Outer Banks. We had to get everything prepped. I had to get my Garmin set up, make sure we had everything charged because we were going to have a way to charge things. And so we got to the Outer Banks and went to dinner and then got everything charged and then went to bed for two hours, woke up at 545 um, to go to the beach because we knew for the documentary, we wanted to get a shot of the sun coming up over the east. Uh, over the horizon, you know, like mm. you're you're doing two oceans over the course of two months. And symbolically, if you can get the sunrise and the sunset and you're chasing the sun across the country and we wanted to get this really beautiful shot of the sun yeah. coming up and us coming out of the ocean as a sense of baptism, you know, with within all these motifs and uh, mm. metaphors. And so we got up super early and drove to the beach and got in the ocean and my goal was to start on nags head pier and finish on santa monica pier and whenever i went to start on nags head pier there's a store in order to like you have to go through the store or the fishing store to get onto the pier and the guy was like you can't bring that bike through here i was like what he's like you can't bring that bike through here i was like but i'm filming a documentary and like blah. blah, blah. he's like i don't care (laughs) you can't and i was so angry I was so mad because I had this idea of the story that I wanted to tell for this whole thing. And it wasn't, it already wasn't going according to plan. And so I told Patrick and I was like, I haven't been that angry in so long. And he was like, we're not Mm -hmm. starting this off on a note of anger. I was like, thank you. You're right. Like, why, like, why can't we just roll with the punches? Whatever story we're trying to tell will come from however it's told. We don't have to be so attached to the story. Think about that in terms of your life as well. Um, Quick aside. And so we started this ride, got out of the ocean, hopped on the bike, rode about 
60 miles the first day, maybe like 67. Uh, so that was mm. another PR on the first day. I'd never biked that much. Um, and, you know, one of my goals for the trip was to make my quads grow just from like a, a subtle, a subtle aesthetic thing. I wanted some cool, cool looking oh, yeah. teardrop quads. Um, got so to get those teardrops. <laughs> right. So I was activating only my quads on the first day. And mm. I, I didn't know what proper cycling form or activation or anything of that nature looked like. And so on the first day, I stopped the bike ride and I had massive inflammation of my knees, like to the point where I couldn't really bend down to like, you know, bend my legs all the way. And I already had kneecap pain. I was like, no. oh, no this is not good. Um, and so I messaged one of the guys that I met right before the trip, Eric Anderson. I was like, dude, what's going on? What's wrong? Like, I can't have knee pain on the first day. Cause in this, in my head, I'm like, Oh no, what have I done? What have I gotten myself mm, into yeah. already in pain? I have 54 more days of this and I, my knee is already to the point where I can't really use it. And he was like, so I messaged him. I messaged my chiropractor and the guy from MSW nutrition, John Doza. And he was like, grab a spoon, grab something slippery to put on your knee and start scraping your knee. And so I started doing grass and mm. on my own knee with a spoon and it hurt like hell, but I knew that it, it fixed my Achilles for the, for the marathon. And then Eric was like, you're using your quads too much. You have glutes and you have hamstrings, two of the biggest muscle groups in your body, use them. And so I started mm. activating my body in the right way and thinking about my glutes as I cycled. And that's, I just kept learning as I went. And the second day I had, you know, less knee pain. The third day I had less knee pain. And I was like, thank God. Um, and in the meantime, we're trying to figure all this out. You know, Patrick and I are separating. He's driving. It's, he started out by following me on the first day um, yeah. constantly, just hazards on right behind me. And we realize we're holding up a lot of traffic. We cannot do this for 55 days. <laughs> like we cannot yeah. be having this high level of stress. And so it got to the point on the second day where he was like, we can't do that. I was like, you're right. So he would go ahead and leapfrog me and find a cool spot. Maybe he wanted to grab some footage or take some photos and he'd wait there for me. And then I would ride past him or stop there for lunch, um, grab lunch real quick. Um, started eating way too much in the beginning. By the end, I wasn't eating lunch because I was I was still fresh. I didn't need food. Mm. Um, and we just kept doing this and slowly learning things. On day three, my phone died. My Garmin died. Um, Patrick had gone ahead to find a really cool um, spot to photo me. And yeah. you know, he thought I'd be there in five, 10 minutes. 10 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, 30 minutes go by, 40 minutes go by. He's like, he's not here. So I'd taken a wrong turn. I don't have a GPS. I don't have a phone in order to get in contact with them. I'm just driving around. I'm riding around North Carolina, all these back roads trying to find my way. The, the supposedly 52 mile day turned into a 70 plus mile day um, where I'm just wow. trying to find my way to the next city. Um, ended up going on some through some construction zones and all that stuff. But that was the first time and the only time that I got lost. Um, and we got separated. And after that, we were like, we need to have an operation in place where if we get separated and your phone dies, you do this, I do this. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really important that we got that down in the very beginning. Um, what did you end up doing to fix the location? Like, what, what was your system after that point? To fix the location, essentially, I always had to make sure my phone was charged. 
Um, that was one of the first ones. Uh, I got my Garmin fixed to where we plugged in the coordinates. So at least if I if my phone died and we weren't taking the same. So the Garmin route was almost always different than the Apple Maps or the Google Maps route. But at least if I could get to the city, then it was fine. Um, and so we'd basically be like, all right, we're going to stay. At, so Patrick would stop at a major junction where it's like, this is a major turn um, to make sure that I was going to take that turn as well. And then he would go on ahead until the next major junction. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty much what our strategy ended up being. Um, we started getting a little bit more loose with it as we went, because in the beginning, I would meet him every maybe five miles, four miles. And then we started slowly um, spanning that out a little bit more because we were like, we have to have more time or even at some point for most of the most of the first half of the ride, we ended up having to go to Starbucks or any sort of place with Wi-Fi at the end of the day to download clips to the internet because we were making weekly mm. episodes. Um, and mm. one of our, my friend Price back home was making those episodes and they didn't continue throughout the ride because it was just so much stress to try and go download clips on public Wi-Fi that took four oh, yeah. hours, five hours to download to. And we were like, we can't be, we can't be doing this. We're wasting yeah. and we're using all of our time to stress over this. Yeah, I was uh I recently got back from traveling through Egypt and throughout that time I was uploading in like video reels a minute to 5-6 minute clips and I wasn't uploading the full episodes of the podcast. I was uploading the audio cuz that's a much smaller file obviously, but I remember the first time I tried to upload a full video on public Wi-Fi and it said, I think it was like six days on the <laughs> YouTube tab. <laughs> I was like, well, uh, I'm going to have to buy or I'm going to have to rent out a seat here in this coffee shop or I can just be like, fuck it. I'll, I'll just put the audio and clips up for now. But yeah, I... I feel for you for the frustration of uploading video clips, especially because it's it can be so fucking frustrating to just be sitting there waiting for a clip that's would normally take you maybe three minutes to upload and you're in a coffee shop somewhere you're traveling with uh, somewhere that doesn't have great Wi-Fi. Yeah. So we stopped doing that um, eventually at some point. It took us way too long to realize that way too long but also i was talking about this with patrick the other day i was like do you feel like that kind of gave us a sense of purpose throughout the ride because mm. every day patrick made made this comment in the very beginning he was like you know we're kind of back to worrying about the basic fundamental human need we're worried mm. about shelter where are we going to park the van um for the night so that we can camp we ended up parking in walmart's more than half the time because there was not that great of camping in all the smallest towns across America. Mm. Um, where are we going to find water? Because I drank over a gallon of water a day. So yeah. we need water for Atlas. We need over a gallon of water for me. Patrick needs water. We need water to shower. Because um, we had this shower bag that we attached to a yeah. pole off the back of the van so that we could at least shower. Um, yeah. And where are we going to find food? Where are we going to be able to cook? we're back to these fundamental human needs. Like we're literally just worried about these things and then a bike ride, you know? And so it was actually really, um, really interesting to go back to just worrying about those things. Like all those things we're worried about in daily life, like 
you know, for instance, being on time to a podcast or making sure you're making sure you're showing up to a meeting on time, um, you know, working out, doing this or that for the job, paperwork, like all that stuff still exists, you know, in the real world. But we're really into whole this whole survival mode thing. And so I felt like I asked Patrick, I was like, do you feel like uploading these videos gave us a sense of purpose and kind of grateful for it in a sense? And he was like, no. <laughs> he was like, yeah. no, we would have been able to enjoy the towns. We would have been able to yeah. go inter- interview more people. We would have been able to actually rest at the end of the day. We wouldn't have been stuck in a Starbucks. That's fair. But, you know, I was yeah, trying fair, to look Fair point, fair <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, yeah, you still, you need that thing at the end of the day to look forward to. and But you could swap it out like like you guys did for something different. Just do, uh, explore the town a little bit or upload clips when the the wi-fi is over five megabits per second or whatever the the minimum is that you need um i i made a note i wanted to come back to the graston you mentioned for a second because we went over it quickly but i'm i'm not sure that most people will know exactly what it is so graston what it looked like for me is uh during my college baseball career i'm lying on a table a lot of times on my back because i had a nagging groin injury for the the last couple years of my career and a trainer is taking metal tools objects of different sizes that look like you could torture someone in a medieval chamber and they're rubbing it hard against your muscles whatever's irritating you and they're literally scraping the scar tissue away from the inside of your body and trying to get blood flow and inflammation to 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 that spot so that you can heal more quickly and loosen up so i doubt i would be able to perform that on myself the only reason i did it was because i knew someone else was doing it on me and there were a couple times where i had the opportunity to do it on my do it on myself because a trainer wasn't there and i was like fuck that i'm just gonna sit in the cold tub or or do something else stretch it out so i admire your willingness to grasp in yourself with a (laughs) with a spoon with a spoon like that is uh i i I just wanted people to know like what that entails like you're not rubbing off a hickey like you're literally digging a spoon into your muscle skin and bones and trying to scrape scar tissue and get any semblance of relief the next day but while you're actually doing it 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 can be extremely painful and to give further perspective on the pain level i have uh like eight tattoos i have a couple that were pretty painful um one on my thigh that had a lot of filling in and graston like was the most painful was more painful than tattoos um and to give further perspective on you know me doing that for myself um there's a lot on the line you know it's it's not like oh if i if i don't do this i'll be fine it'll be like i don't really need to do this it's more of i could potentially fail at something that i promised a lot of people i would do um and it's only day one like this is worth the pain and it's one of those pains that you know you're holding your breath the whole time and like you're 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 wincing and squinting and you're scraping into your knee and you're like if someone hadn't taught me how to do this if John hadn't taught me how to do this I'd be like I am injuring myself because it's so painful yeah but yeah. it is scraping no, it's not, all of that scar tissue yeah it's not like rolling out rolling out 
it can be a bit uncomfortable, even borderline painful sometimes when you're on a roller and you're like, oh, this, like it's pain, but it's a good type of pain. If, if I didn't know, <laughs> Gra- I, if I didn't know Graston was good for you when performed the proper way and someone just started scraping my, the inside of my groin or my knee, I'd be like, you're, you're tearing my MCL right now. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're this, you're, uh, debilitating me for life. Like, this is not good. There's like a 0% chance this will help at all. And then, you know, the next day or sometimes two days later, depending on how much you did, you're, wake up and you're like oh wow like i actually feel not that bad so it's uh it's uh it's a crazy crazy thing Uh, i i imagine like that's it's someone came up with it back in you know before medicine in the fucking like 1300s or something and they're like well i mean you had a heart attack. I don't know what else to do than <laughs> just take the just take this metal object and just like dig it into your chest and start to restart my heart again. And then 500 years later, they realize, oh yeah, like we could actually use this on muscles. Like we definitely killed a lot of people back in the day, but like this is actually useful for uh, soreness. It's making me tense right now just thinking about it. <laughs> good, good. That that's oh, a, that's man. a sign of a good podcast host. I I yeah. want my guests to feel just very <laughs> tense and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um. So I I wanted to bring up a part part of a Facebook post that you you had posted. I believe it was after the the completion of the bike ride, and you wrote in a, in a Facebook post. The truth is. I almost lost my life two times out there. The amount of life essence that it took to continue and finish after each of these events put me in a sheer survival mode. While out there on the road, something catastrophic happened and I had to stop sharing the journey so I could focus on my own. So what the hell happened out there? How did you almost lose your life two times and describe this catastrophic uh, event or or series of events to people? Hmm. Okay. Um, so that's a, a major part of the documentary and I can't possibly do the full severity of it justice without actually showing like the sequence mm. of events and the mere mag, like sheer magnitude of everything that was happening. So I don't yeah. want to give everything away currently cause that's the, it's the, climax it's the death the rebirth of the hero on the hero's journey um of, co- of so course I can't, yeah, yeah i can't give some I, details yeah give, give just give details. us just give us a taste and then i'm gonna in, in the podcast description i'm gonna point people towards the the documentary and the the release of it so of course don't uh i do not expect you at all to give away the the full thing, but if you could just give people an idea, lead up something to to hang on to before they actually watch it. Right. So what I will say is one of the main uh, battles, the main struggles throughout the entire ride was the route. Um, it was dealing with traffic. It was the lack of a shoulder on bikeable routes across the United States. Um, something mm. that Google Maps, something that you know the entire country and highway system considers safe for bikers 
should not should should not be a bikeable route um you know for people that are trying to travel across america on a bicycle in order to become better versions of themselves they should not also have to be contemplating their mortality um as they are cycling next to semi trucks next to dump trucks next to people who are on their phones on a highway going 75 miles an hour on route 66 on i40 on i10 yeah. um this was a theme throughout the entire ride where we were constantly struggling with should we ride here is this worth it and so whenever we got onto route 66 that's whenever the real struggle began we thought that everything was going to be easier once we got to Oklahoma City and hopped on Route 66, you know, because Route 66 is the mother road of America. It's like, of course, yeah. it's a bike. Of course, it's a bikeable route. It's it goes all the way across. What we didn't know was that whenever they recreated the highway system across the U.S. and made I-40, there are portions going through Texas and New Mexico where the ranchers would not give over portions of their land to make an access road. So you are riding on the shoulder of the interstate with semis that are literally just transporting goods. And like, that's the only cars that you really see or the only vehicles that you really see are, are semis, um, semis, dump trucks, trailers, very heavy machinery. And you're just 180 pounds of flesh um, cycling on the side of the road. And so this was the struggle that we found eventually like in the beginning we started really trying to avoid it and then we got to the point where we couldn't avoid it anymore it was like we have to bike almost 250 miles out of the way to even hop off this road for 500 miles um and mm. so the majority of texas so all of new mexico was mainly highway it was mainly i-40 and essentially what happened i'm not going to give the full detail behind the incident itself. Um, mm. But I ended up sliding down the highway for about 50 to 100 feet on my side um, due to Jesus. something that was not my fault. Um, and started at about 32 miles an hour on the side of a mountain, slid it really far down, um, came to a halt, stood up, looked at my side, covered in blood. Um, my my limbs are shaking uh, from the adrenaline rush and I've had some minor road rash before um, and it's not in pain right now. And I just know that I only have a matter of time before everything starts becoming excruciating. Yeah. Um, and it's, and essentially what happened from there was we rode into, or we Patrick, I called Patrick. I said, Hey, by this point, Davis had already had also taken Alice's spot. So I had two friends. Um, I called them. I said, Hey, I'm alive. Um, nothing's broken. You need to be here like two minutes ago. Um, it's not good. Um, I am, you know, for right now I'm fine, but this is a big deal. And so if y'all could get here, they leap, leapfrogged me by about 10 miles. So it took them about 25 minutes to get to me. Um, some people were stopping traffic. Um, it was a whole ordeal on the side of the, on, on the entire freeway. Um, it was, a, it was a big deal. Other cars were getting involved too. Um, some people stopped to stop traffic and directed around me and the incident on the road. Um, and so they drove me into Albuquerque. The EMS came before this and they were like, hey, we can bring you to Albuquerque. 
um, to the hospital, but they're going to do exactly what you could do by yourself. And they're not going to be as gentle on you um, mm. to get all of this gravel and rock and tar out of your open wounds. Um, Cause I had rock lodged like rock and gravel and tar lodged into my skin. Jesus. Um, it was, it was pretty bad. And so they were like, they're not going to be as easy on you. And so we drove into Albuquerque after only riding three miles that day. I got in the bathtub and I started to scrape um, tar out of open wounds. And Jesus. it was the most excruciating. I've been through a lot. I've broken bones. I've had some major crashes before. Um, you know, this was the most excruciating pain of my entire life because square feet of my body uh was open and it was lodged with tar and tar is not water soluble it's only soluble in gasoline and i'm definitely not putting mm -hmm. gasoline on my skin um so <laughs> i thought about it but absolutely not and so i had to grab a washcloth grab some antibacterial scrub and just start scrubbing at my skin and it'd be one thing if I could just you know scrub it really quick and it was just one area and then you get over the pain but um there was just square feet of my body and so I'm I'm sobbing in the tub um I've you know I've cried before I've been emotional I've cried you know I've been in pain I was like <laughs> like sobbing screaming the front desk called the room and they're like is everything okay and my yeah. buddy, yeah, are, are you <laughs> battering your wife right now? Like, what is what is happening? <laughs> like people, people at the hotel. It's like it's five p.m. Why, why are there screams coming from this hotel room? Um, and my buddy's like, yeah, he's just cleaning his wounds out. At some point, I passed out in the bathtub. Patrick has to be like, hey, like, are are you okay? I'm like, yeah, it's just you know, it's a part of it. It's the pain. Um, and yeah, it's it was so that was the most excruciating excruciating moment of my life and then from there i knew that this whole thing like it was extremely i've been in some traumatic situations before and right now the trauma hadn't built up yet um as to this to sheer severity and closeness to death and proximity to death um of what this was gonna entail and hold for me on my journey moving forward and i was like i know for a fact that this is going to suck worse than anything I've ever done, but I have to get back on the bike tomorrow. Like the, the back wheel was blown wow. out. We, we had to get a new bike or a new, a new wheel. Um, and so we went to the, we even went to the bike shop before we went to the hotel to get cleaned off. Cause I was like, this has to happen immediately because the more time that I allow this to build up and the more break I take from getting back on the bike right there, the harder it's going to be to ever return to this. Um, and I'm not stopping. Like this is when it's not what you do. It's why you do it matters. Um, I, if I was doing this for the sake of, oh, I want to ride a bike across the country so that when people ask me what's the coolest thing I've ever done, like, oh, I rode a bike across a continent. Like, I'm pretty cool. Like, no, that's not yeah. why I was doing this. I was doing this to tell a story about resilience and about mental health. I was doing this to tell a story about whenever it gets hardest, that's whenever you need to keep moving forward the most. And so this whole concept of this story we were trying to tell was now fully in fruition where it was like, I have to get back on the bike tomorrow. And so I did. And I started biking again the next day. 
and it's you know a UV of a UV of 10 in the middle of the desert in Albuquerque and it's super hot and you're sweating into open wounds and the sun is baking your skin through your through the sleeve and the and the bandages on your leg and it's it's tough but you know the toughest part was after every semi that passes me you know i every semi that i see in my mirror cuz i had a mirror right here it would pass me and i would I would flinch a little bit, like ready for impact every single one. Yeah. And so there's no more flow state. There's no more, oh, I can enjoy this ride. You know, I can just kind of be in the moment. But the funny thing is, up until this point, I was teaching this be here now, live in the moment, enjoy the journey. Um, but I wasn't. I wasn't truly doing that. I was, I was daydreaming and fantasizing about the documentary that was going to come out of this experience about the end of the ride and looking into the Pacific Ocean, the epiphany that I was going to have looking into the ocean. And so the universe, God, whoever it is that you want to say it was, I became very spiritual on this, on this trip because of this experience. But he was like, hey, you know what's the one thing that doesn't allow you to enjoy anything or to be anything but in this here moment right now it's pain severe pain and so you're not going to be able to fantasize about the end you're not going to be able to think about the past you're going to be merely focused on how much pain you're in and i became a shell of a human i was after these a couple days later there was another experience um with death as well and i just became a couple days later Jesus. A couple of days later, um, and I became the shell of a human. And thank God that Patrick had Davis, and thank God I had Davis as well. He joined in Oklahoma City, and he wrapped me every single day, twice a day, because he had his wilderness first mm. aid certification. So he knew how to wrap all these wounds up. Um, because Patrick had no idea, I couldn't wrap. You know, my whole arm right here—you can see the scars right now. Um, I couldn't wrap my arm because I needed two hands, and so. They're wrapping me up every single day. And the funny thing is, like, the theme of this ride is we go further together um, to emphasize the importance of community and tribe to your mental health. And I couldn't have done this experience or completed this ride without, after this accident, without these two guys. I mean, they put up with my bullshit. I was a monster. There was one thing that I was thinking about every single, every single day, every single, (laughs) every single day. And it was, I, have to bike and finish this daily ride. I have to finish mm. this daily ride. I have, it's just day by day. It's not even I have to get to the Pacific Ocean. But after, you know, a couple of days of falling behind because I was injured and I got taken out again and had to take two days of bed rest, I had to catch up or we got to, we wanted to catch up yeah. to arrive in Santa Monica on August 14th because we had some of our best friends and family there waiting for us. And so, It was a matter of I get to, I want to keep going. I want to keep going. But I was a monster to my friends. It was, it was very business. You know, it was, it was, this is what we're doing today. Um, That's, that's wrong. That's right. Okay, great. Thank you. It was, I was not my normal self. And to play into this whole overarching theme of mental health, you know, my friends were there for me. Um, I asked for help. They gave it to me. I wasn't the nicest person in return because I didn't really have the capability of being so, you know, I couldn't prioritize them and our relationship because I was really just trying to prioritize myself. 
Um, and so it was asking yeah. for that help and accepting that help that um, really, I mean, I get emotional about it to this day, going through the documentary and editing it, that it's like, man, getting further from this, like they really put up with my shit. Yeah. About pain turning you into a monster. You know, I've, I've never experienced or felt anything to the level of physical pain that you've described. And it it sounds like, like, you know, a, a near death experience, which is exactly what it was. And you'll have to watch the documentary to find out exactly what the the cause of it was but just from hearing your words and the way that you describe it and thinking about pain in my own life changing who i am going through my own painful moments physically and also with some intense anxiety attacks in the past i know that the first thing that goes in my mind when i when I'm experiencing pain and experiencing anxiety and, and sometimes at the same time is that the way that I treat people just goes by the wayside. Like I literally feel my sense of humor and sense of connection leave my soul. And the only thing that I'm thinking about in those moments is like, fuck this. I need this pain to go away. You know, crazy thoughts of anxiety i like i can't treat people like they deserve to be treated so i can't imagine after having an injury like that where you know half your body is literally scraped away and you have to deal with that every single day and you're like that would be one thing to just have that happen and then go home and recover that would still be an absolute mountain of an ordeal and the fact that you were doing it and recovering while you were biking across America, I can't imagine the the fortitude and the open-mindedness and the just, I don't know what to call it, like just inner touch with your soul. I, I can't imagine what that took to even treat people 10% of how you would normally treat them. Because if it were me, I'd be like, fuck this, like... I don't give a shit about anyone until I recover. Like this, this, this is like, I can't, I can't imagine what that was like. And to, to elaborate on that whole, like going home and recovering versus recovering on the ride after the second incident, <laughs> after the second one, um, my advisor from college, Mary Elizabeth, uh, she's helped me through some of the the highest and lowest moments of my life. And I, I called her because I was not going to tell my parents what had happened. Uh, my mom would have would have flown out there and been like, nope, like broken the bike in half and been like, we're going home. Um, and yeah. so I didn't tell my parents what had happened because I didn't want them to worry until I was done. You know, um, I told a couple people. Most people didn't know. Everyone that was following on Instagram had no idea. Uh, it just went from one day I had no bandages to the next day I had bandages. <laughs> um, and my advisor was like, you know, after this second incident, I want you to contemplate what the ending of this story looks like. And this mm -hmm. was at the same time as um, the Olympics, whenever Simone Biles was dropping out for mental health. And there were mm -hmm. a lot of other athletes prioritizing their own mental health so that they could on the world stage so that they could get other people to prioritize it. And so they were asking yeah. me to look at it in a similar way where it was like, you know, maybe you could like put a halt to this and make it make that statement this is not where my story ends this is not where this story ends because 
I had to do, or I got to do a series of pros and cons whenever I was bed on bed rest in a hotel um, for two days. I was doing a list of pros and cons in my head. You know, there's tons of pros and cons, like the pros and cons to leaving and, and going home and the pros and cons to continuing the bike ride. And a lot of the pros or the cons to leaving was like, you know, Patrick might get a job after this and I might not have a team to be able to make this happen. Outdoorsy has sponsored this with a van for only these days. It'd be really hard to get another van. Um, those were some of the things like the logistic aspect of, of actually being able to return to this ride after I've healed mm -hmm. because there's no way I'm walking away from this forever. You know, I have to come back and finish it. But if we leave, it gets that much harder. And the main thing that kept me on the bike was if I go home, and I heal on a couch. So like today I throw in the towel outside of Grants, New Mexico. I throw in the towel. We drive home. My buddies go back to Dallas and Oklahoma City respectively. I go back to Austin. I'm covered in road rash. I can't really do anything in Austin. I had so much swelling in my left leg that I could barely walk. I could actually bike better than I could walk. Um, I had a massive mm. limp. It was full of fluid. Um, and I go home. I heal on the couch. Days go by. I watch it heal. I keep redressing it. Um, I'm not really able to work out anywhere else because, like, I'm covered in road rash. Yeah. And August 14th rolls around, and I'm sitting on my couch. And that's the day that I'm supposed to arrive on the pier in Santa Monica, California. And I didn't make that happen. Um, I had to think about my mental health in that state and how depressed. And how much I would question because by the time August 14th rolled around, I had very, very little open skin left. My body had healed mostly. Um, it was still super pink. It was still subject to sunburn. Uh, it was still oozing a little bit, but it wasn't as bad as it was on the first day. And so I would look down at my leg and be like, dang, maybe I could have finished. And I didn't want to have that what if by, by no means was there ever going to be a what if and it definitely wasn't going to be simply throwing in the towel on this day it was going to be so we decided from then it's a day-by-day -day decision we do this day okay we did it tomorrow we do this day okay we did it are we good are we are we in infected are we worsening in case in condition or case is this getting really hard is this bad for us so we decided to take it day by day you know as mental health goes it's just can i get through this day can i get through this yeah. day can I get through this day? And sometimes you're taking it, you're, you're taking it months, weeks, days, hours, minutes at a time. Sometimes it's that hard. And so we chose to look at this and we don't have to throw in the towel all at once. We can take it day by day. And if things, if the case worsens, then we can decide to go home, but by no means are we just going to quit. Um, and so we kept taking it day by day and eventually we stayed in hotels for two weeks. Um, we had some incredible people, uh, spot our hotels because we could not afford it based on the money we raised. You know, we raised money for this van, but we couldn't stay in there because I had to stay, keep all my wounds clean. And mm -hmm. eventually we got out of the hotels and we camped in the Mojave Desert under the stars after two weeks in excruciating pain and hotels and showers. And we just sat on the hood of the van and on the top of the van and we just watched the stars. And we were like, this is what we actually did this for. This is the reason we took this trip is for this moment, you know, for these small moments. It's not for this massive feat of crossing the country. It's, you know, like all of the meaning is found in this, the small moments. And so we're looking at the stars and we're like, we're back. You know, I'm still 
having to put all this stuff in my wounds every single day, but I'm not having to get a hotel room and check in for the night and check out in the morning. Um, so, so, so normally, normally when people are going through intense amount of pain, they scale back the pain however they can to get to a place where they can function. But for you, that wasn't an option. You Or it was an option, but you chose not to take it. You had the layering of pain of the bike ride on top of the pain from two near-death catastrophic injuries. Was there any sort of mantra that you would say to yourself while you're riding or a place that you would imagine in your head? Like, how were you getting to a place to which you continue alongside this intense pain that normally someone would say, I need to take whatever medication or put my feet up, do something to take it away. But you had all of these things in your life that were producing pain and yet you were still able to continue. So um, I'm just wondering, you know, for my own selfishness too, for, for the future, for experiencing uh, painful moments, like how were you getting to the place where you were still able to continue and, and doing work and, and having the discipline to stay on track with the, the main goal? So there's two mantras. The first one is keep moving forwards right here. Um, mm. it's what we started with whenever we ran out of water in the Grand Canyon on this, on this founding trip when we found it forwards is, you know, eventually it was actually, excuse my French, but keep moving forwards, motherfucker. Um, keep because, moving forwards, motherfucker. Because we run out of water in the Grand Canyon, your friend in front of you stops. There's only water at the beginning and the end. You have to keep going. Like you have mm. to keep going. And so we founded this, this this lifestyle, this philosophy, this brand around keep moving forwards, like the highs and lows of life are when you keep moving forwards. And right now I had the opportunity to showcase how far keep moving forwards could take me, you know, as the mm. one of the one of the founders of this philosophy, I could show people like this is how far this can take you if you really let it. So that was the first one, like, first of all, as the founder, as the embodiment of this philosophy and this brand, I can't quit. Like I have to keep moving forwards. I can't be a hip, like a hypocrite within my own philosophy. And so that kept me moving forwards. And then one of the big, big things is um, in the beginning of the year, I learned this term from one of my best friends, Noah, who is a modern day philosopher. Um, and he told me about this phrase called insterquilinius inventor. Um, it is Latin meaning mm. in filth it shall be found. The in place, filth it shall be found. In filth it shall be found. It actually directly translates to it is found in the cesspool. The place mm. where you least want to look is where you find what you need the most. And I got this Latin tattooed on my thigh right before I left for the ride, right there in my face so that I could see it on the bike. And so most of my time across the country, I'm looking down, right? I'm looking down at the road because I can't constantly hold my head up at this angle and that is right there in my face and filth it shall be found and filth it shall be found. And originally, this is this comes from the philosopher Carl Jung and originates with King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Whenever the Knights of the Round Table are sent off on a journey or quest to look for the Holy Grail, they don't know where to start looking for the Grail. And so they are instructed 
to each individually go into the forest on the path that takes them out of the kingdom into the forest. They are to stop and look around in the forest and the place, the path within the forest that looks the darkest to them is where they should start looking. So this whole phrase was like, of course, I don't want to keep going on this bike. But if I'm trying to find something within myself, if I'm trying to push myself in a way that creates this version of myself that I would never want to miss out on, what would I do? I would Mm. probably continue forward on this excruciating bike ride through the Mojave Desert and 118 degrees and ride through the night one night because our van got stuck in the sand for eight hours that day. You know, I would I would do this thing that I don't want to do that is uncomfortable because I know that on the other side of discomfort is a level of comfort within yourself that no one can take from you. And so in Circulinius and Venator was was the really, really big one for me that I just learned right before the ride that I really leveraged in order to be like, well, yes, of course, I don't want to do this, but that's exactly why I should. It's such an interesting concept because the often the things that are the most uncomfortable are the the shit that we always want to run away from and myself included and and it's it's so it, it it's hard to explain to people um you know i i've i'm lucky that i came from a an athletic background and that i was playing sports from a young age and continued through college cuz just going off of basic things that are hard. One of the things you can do is lift weights or work out every day to take things to a much smaller level, just doing daily workouts. And I'll occasionally have conversations with people that don't really work out that much, but they ask me what I get out of it. Or they'll say things like, Oh yeah, you know, I, you know, what, what's the, the point I'm not training for anything. I'm not, pushing myself physically towards some goal like biking across America or climbing a mountain, something like that. And I know the feeling of starting something hard that sucks for five minutes. And then you get into this sort of flow state and the hard thing becomes this, it's still hard, but it becomes something that seems like it's a pathway opening to a different place where you're doing something that's difficult, but at the same time, it's this thing that you're doing right now and it becomes somewhat enjoyable in a sick way. And <laughs> you, 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 you can't really, you know, obviously you felt that to a much greater extent biking across America, but like you can't really explain to people why it, it's fun to work out because it sucks. Like I've never succeeded in, in, I don't think I've ever completely succeeded in telling someone in words why it's, it feels great to me to work out because I always get back to like, yeah, it sucks, but like, it's good. And then the other person's like, well, that doesn't sound like something I want. So like, why would I do that? But I'm like, no, I'm telling you, like, it's going to suck for the first you know, a few minutes or a couple weeks, whatever. It depends how long uh, you've gone without working out or, or what you're able to do physically. But it's like these these places where you're in the filth and you're doing hard things, they are often the place where you find out more about yourself. But at the same time, we all have these limitations where we're like, I, you know, this is going to suck. I don't want to do it. And then you have to 
overcome this barrier. And then every time you do it, it becomes a little bit easier, a little bit easier. It never totally doesn't suck. But just hearing you talk about this and getting through those sort of injuries, I can't imagine the depth of your well for getting through hard shit, how much you were carving it deeper and deeper during this bike ride to the point where now I'm sure the things that used to seem difficult to you before this these injuries and, and the, the bike ride overall, now you can go back to that and kind of dig from this well of, well, you know, I did, I, you know, I basically had half my body scraped off and finished a bike ride. So, you know, I can go for a 30 minute run or something like that, or, or mental, go through something mentally tough, like having a, a difficult conversation with someone, you, you have that deepness that you've built inside of you of, of doing the, the hard shit and going through the filth. And that's exactly why it's worth it to go through the pain of working out because you have to build that. You have to start digging that well somewhere. That's, yeah. that's where you start digging it is whenever you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, you can, you can see within working out, it's tangible. It, it sucks. It, it sucks to get to the worst part is really getting dressed to go to the gym and then getting in the car. And then you get there and you're like, all right, well, I'm here, you know, so I'm going to start doing this. The first couple exercises, they're like, you're like, why am I doing this? And then after suddenly it's the end and you're like, oh, I did it. And then you, yeah. you compound that by a couple days and then a couple weeks and then a couple months. And you're like, man, I, I look, I feel good about myself. Like I not only look good in the mirror, but I also feel healthy. I feel more nimble, faster, like whatever it might be. I'm able to run for that frisbee whenever I whenever I play with my friends at the park. You know, I'm able to play harder, to play better, to enjoy life better. And that's what really gets you in the gym and makes you see that. And so that's whenever you can start looking at other areas of your life like, oh, well, if I do the thing that I don't want to do, then like, yeah, it sucks right now, but it's going to make everything else easier. Have like, you ever so heard of the two choose, minute rule? Uh, you- remind me. To so James Clear writes about it in Atomic Habits, and it's basically the the hardest to the, the the hardest thing to do is the first two minutes of doing a difficult task. So if you could just get through the first two minutes, you're vastly increase your chances of completing the task. So for working out, it could be just putting on your running shoes and getting changed. And then once you're changed, even though you haven't actually completed the workout, you're much less likely to go sit down on the couch in compression shorts and running sneakers than <laughs> had you had you not get gotten changed. And I've definitely found that to be true because I'll think back to that now after reading it and be like, all right, I don't feel like working out today. You know, 60% chances isn't going to happen, but like, let me just put on shorts and sneakers and then see how I feel. And then immediately I'm like, well, now I'm going to feel like a piece of shit, like sitting on, sitting on the couch in workout gear. Cause I have this constant reminder that you should be working out. You lazy piece of shit. Like you're literally sitting <laughs> in your, your workout attire. Um, and it, and it's, it's weird how it's like, it's, it's no, it's not a physical strain, but just doing those first two minutes jump starts your willingness to complete the actual task which is more physically difficult but just doing that little kind of check at the beginning helps helps you push through it i love that i love that my mom used to always tell me as well 90 percent of life showing up i hated it 
I they, hated you know, that grow, grow, growing up as a kid because you're like, I don't want to go to swim practice. I don't want to go to school. My mom's like 90% of life showing up. And like that, you know, I started using that briefly in my beginning of my adult life, like probably, you know, two years ago, three years ago. And it really is true. You know, like with that thing, you that meeting you don't want to go to that the gym, you know, like just showing up is where all the friction is. And then you can show up and then you're at that meeting or you're at that that party that you know you should go to. Um, that's how I actually started my time here in Austin. That's a whole other story. But yeah, um, it's it's if you can just show up, then everything will take over and and you can get through it. Um, yeah, so that's very, I, I, like I wanted to. Yeah, I, I so I wanted to go back to the the traffic again, and and you mentioned how poorly constructed the roads were for biking in many parts of the middle of the country, where you know you're doing the meat of the journey. So one of the reasons why I don't bike in New York City is because I've seen multiple bikers get hit, and for every biker that I've seen get hit, I see a dozen more close calls. And I, I walk and take the subway everywhere, like most New Yorkers, but like, it doesn't even cross my mind to bike because of how poorly constructed the roads are for biking in the city. Like even bike lanes are so small. It's like, you just, they don't have, the bikes don't have priority. It's just the cars and it makes it very hard to bike. And it's all, I'm sure it's also similar in a lot of other places, Chicago, LA, uh, American cities. And recently, uh, within this past year, I've had the chance to go to the Netherlands because my girlfriend was completing her PhD at University of Maastricht. And the Netherlands is completely different. It's like they built the bike lanes first and then they built the city around the bike lanes. And the bikers are so much more respected. You have literal lanes to bike in. Like it's not just this two inch lane on the side of the road that has a tiny bike in it like you're it's legitimate two three lanes in some places for bikes and you could see car like cars just stop even though there's signs anyway like if there's even a bike close to crossing you stop they cross it just watching people bike it seemed like such a a more pleasant atmosphere to bike in and you know going through what you went through i can't imagine the anxiety that you mentioned where you know every time something passes you you get a chill down your spine where you're like oh fuck like is something about to happen again um you know i i this is out of my control if uh someone uh is trucking across the country uh on adderall that hasn't slept in 72 hours like are they gonna are they going to just fucking run me over that second? Like, is, you know, what, th- there's a lot of things that are out of your control biking. And it, it just made me, when you're talking about it, it kind of made me think of the Netherlands and, and how it would be great if more areas of the country were built to give people access to biking, not just biking, but like walking, scooter, whatever, just something that's not a car. Yeah, absolutely. Within this, within this bike ride, I, was reflecting and I'm like, there's so much room on the side of the highway, highway, like in between here and the fence. Mm. What if they just paved a little bike path all the way across the country? I know that that's like not the most economically feasible, financially feasible option for the government or the state government or anything like that. But to offer more people the opportunity, like if you want to see what you're made of, you can do something like this. It's like you, you could do it tomorrow. 
I, I have zero doubt about it unless you have some sort of major, major knee issue or hip issue. Like, but cycling is the, the least impact on your body. Um, pretty much anyone can do it and anyone can make the bike across the country if you have the mental well. Um, and you mm. can build that mental well as you go as well. I would recommend starting from east to west if you want to build that over time. Otherwise, you're starting in California and going straight into the mountains out of California. Yeah. Whereas we had, we had about five or six days of riding before we actually went into the Blue Ridge Mountains, which was like one of the most beautiful areas in the country. Um, mm. But I would love to have a route across the country um, that gave people the opportunity to feel safe um, as, they're, as they're biking. Because it's just such a cool opportunity. And if I didn't have to think about my death, I mean, maybe it would have been different. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten as much from it if I hadn't almost died twice. And then a third time, you know, I'm looking in my mirror because I check every single vehicle that's coming up behind me. And a U-Haul is coming up behind me. And I'm like, you are you are getting close. And then it starts veering onto the shoulder. And so I veer off the road and, and break and end up, you know, in the ditch. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't looked, at the U-Haul in my mirror and made the decision to get off the road and almost fall over, it would have totally taken me out. Yeah. So it's like, that would have been a third time. Like that would have been surefire. Like, see ya, like it was done. And so just not having to deal with that, you know, being able to prioritize bikers, also (laughs) bikers get such a bad rep for some reason everywhere in the U S it's like, Oh, you're wasting everyone's time. It's like, why is everyone in such a hurry? Why, why, why are you so worried about this biker? That's like, prioritizing his health or her health and like really getting active and saving energy and doing all this. And you're like, Oh, you have to stop at the stop sign too. It's like, yeah, but it takes so much less energy for you to stop at the stop sign and then press your gas pedal (laughs) to to keep going. And it does for me to stop a full stop and then start going again on an uphill at a stop sign. Like, can you be more understanding of bikers, please? Um, Well, bikers better. (laughs) <laughs> let me let me let me play devil's advocate for a second in defense yeah, right. of people who get unreasonably angry at bikers as someone coming from New York I will say that there are two two groups of people that cause an intense emotional knee jerk uncalled for reaction in my in my psyche the first one is a, a a person or a group of people that are biking 10 to 20 miles an hour in a 30 or 40 over lane but like in traffic like they in their own minds they think that they are going as fast as the cars and there's like a gigantic line of cars behind the bikers so that is that is my first pet peeve again maybe on call for and then the second <laughs> one the second one is a group of old women because it's always old women that power walk shoulder to shoulder across a trail taking up the entire trail and they refuse to budge like literally it's like a glacier of cellulite that is moving down a trail (laughs) that that you cannot budge for whatever reason and you know, maybe I'll do that when I'm older. Like I'm, I'm sure I'll be power walking with my 85 year old buddies and see people, a, a line of bikers or joggers, whatever, behind me, and just be like, they can go around. I've been on this earth for 60 years longer than they have. Maybe I'll feel like that when I'm older. I don't know. But as a New Yorker uh, who has 
gotten reasonably and unreasonably angry at bikers and power walkers. That is my that is my two cents. So yeah, take, it, take it as you will. <laughs> the common denominator with both those seems like the invasive aspect. It's like mm-hmm. whenever there's whenever there's bikers on the road that are acting like they're cars. Like I am not a car. Yeah. Uh, whenever there's yeah. people and like they're taking up the whole roads where cars are just being completely inconvenienced, right? Like clearly everyone has somewhere to go. If you're in a car, you're going somewhere. So like I hate whenever bikers are like, I am better than you. And yeah, like that's what I hate. The- they have like the they have like the I'm better than you energy. Like some guy who is wearing everything that Lance Armstrong would wear to compete in the Tour de France and they're going three times as slow in the 60 mile an hour lane and I'm just like oh my god like can you please move over just a a, a little bit like maybe I'll I'll uh uh give a little love tap from behind or something but it's uh yeah yeah I mean it would be solved if we had a better lanes for bikes like a better system for bikes across the the country which would be economically infeasible in the short term but in the long term you know maybe i'm sure a lot more people would bike and that would save a lot of money and stress and time and in other ways and happier people too yeah 100 percent people so while I was uh, stalking your social media, I came across another excerpt that I wanted to share from a post where you you shared uh, an excerpt from The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. And this is about tribe. So I will I'll read the excerpt and then I wanted to get your thoughts on how this mentality may have affected you during your ride. So Stephen Kotler writes, whenever we encounter a difficult situation, the brain makes a basic risk assessment based on the quality and quantity of our close relationships. If you have friends and family around you to help you attack a problem, your potential for actually solving that problem increases significantly. The brain treats the situation as an interesting challenge, not a dangerous threat. The result is dopamine. However, if you have to face that situation alone, your likelihood of success decreases and your anxiety levels increase. Instead of dopamine, you get stress chemicals like cortisol. Since, uh, since these chemicals can crush performance, if you're interested in the impossible, the basic biology of your nervous system demands you take other people along for the ride. So I wanted to ask you how has having people along for the ride literally you had another person along for the ride and then also met i'm sure dozens of other people along the way and and had conversations and interactions like how is that mentality of having a tribe and people around you while you're performing a difficult task helped you in the task itself while you were reading that first of all i'd forgotten that i posted that um and so i'm a good stalker I, I got I got a little bit emotional um, hearing you reread that because I don't think I've reread that since since the ride and it's super super cool because I just had the full realization within my head that you know I looked at that accident as a challenge and the reason that I was able to do so is because I knew I had two friends like my two of my best friends that like. You know, we all have our own bullshit and they are able to see through mine and I'm able to see through theirs. 
And I would not have been able to keep going. I would not have been able to do that ride had I not had those friends be like, I, I looked at them after the accident. And I said, you know, I haven't thought about quitting, right? And they were like, no, I mean, we, we, we hadn't even expected you to ever say that you wanted to quit at this point. And Patrick told me the other day, he said, I just want to let you know that I like he'd, he'd remembered this and told me, he said, you know, whenever Davis and I were in the van and you were out there biking and you were in a ton of pain and hard to deal with, we never once contemplated the idea of what happens if we don't finish this. They never once talked about like, what if Joe can't make it? What if what if we can't make this ride, finish this ride? And just having having other people that believe in you so hard that in one of the hardest, toughest times of your life, you're able to look at that as a challenge, not as a, a holdback um, within your journey was so crucial. I mean, it, it makes me so grateful, not only that they like believed in me, but they also put up with my bullshit and were able to see through that, see through that pain and put themselves in my shoes. Um, we definitely got into major tips. Um, I ended up yelling at Davis, not because it was his fault, but because I felt so frustrated because I ended up on, toward the end of the ride, I ended up on I-10, um, mm. which is like a eight lane highway. And I was like, no, like this is, this is not cool. This is not okay. It's not your fault. Um, we have one and a half days left like this. We can't be on I-10. Um, but having those people like there to believe in me and in us and that this was possible is what is the only reason that it was. Um, and that's, that's the book that actually pushed me to make the ride because it talks about, um, impossible, like the, the word, um, with a lowercase I and an uppercase I uppercase impossible is no one has done this yet. Lowercase mm. I impossible is I haven't done this yet. And so it's looking at the bike across wow. the country as a lowercase I like, yes, it seems impossible for me for whatever reason. Um, because I don't know my limits yet. Um, but have other people done it? So yes, they have. It's lowercase impossible. Therefore, it's not impossible for me. I can make this happen. And with those the two of my best friends, and then I can't forget to mention the countless people across the country that I talked to, that we interviewed, that we asked about their story with these cards and with these questions. And they opened up immediately. And they told us, you know, what their dream is. Like one of the biggest influences on the ride was Dave Blodgett, um, who was mm. just a random, uh, he owns Lake Gaston Outfitters in North Carolina. And it was the day that my chain broke. It was the first thing that happened to us on the ride where I had some kind of difficulty with my bike. I didn't have a flat first, my chain snapped. So I went to a bike shop and met the mechanic at the bike shop. His name was Dave Blodgett. And we connected immediately and we talked and he fixed my bike and he gave me, he gave me the mirror, actually. He's like the, the Q and the 007 movies, like giving you the, the thing that you need in order, like whenever the moment comes, you're going to yeah. use this. He gave me the mirror that I needed. He was like, you need a mirror. And yeah, like he's, he's the guy life. who put the, the heat seeking missiles and on your bike, <laughs> exactly. you know, like in case the oil in the back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so he gave me the mirror and he drew the card. Uh, what is your dream? And his answer was to do what you're doing. My dream is wow. to grab my grab my bike and ride across the country. And Patrick asked him, he was like, well, why aren't you? Why, why won't you? And he pointed to his wife and he said, her, like as a joke, which was funny. 
but it was so it was so crucial for him to for him to not only give me those gadgets to help me succeed but to also offer me the perspective of you know what I'm doing I'm doing it because it sucks right I'm doing it to show other people that you can do the sucky thing but I also need to remember that what I'm doing right now is someone else's dream and so I should treat it with the respect of doing something that someone else would be jealous of mm. and would want to do and so from there it changed my perspective and throughout the entire ride we're interviewing people and they're giving us life advice we met this old older man Charles who didn't start hiking the Appalachian Trail until he was 72 and we, we asked him what life advice he have or if you could give one piece of advice to the whole world what would it be he drew that card and his advice was whatever it is that you want to do do it now and we got that same piece of advice from people all the way across the country it was do it now don't wait whatever it is you want to do do it you think you have all this time to do these things that you want to do but in all reality you could be taken out by a semi on the side of a highway tomorrow you yeah. could get in the car accident we think we're guaranteed all this time and we're just not in, in regards to the the dream what you said that's a really cool unique way to look at it that you're performing someone else's dream i've never i've never thought about it that way before cuz i'm always when, when i'm doing something hard that's a long-term goal i'm always so wrapped up in my own motivations and my own ego of i need to get this done i need to get this 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 and this this is what i'm gonna get out of it this is what i'll be like after i do this so i need to keep pushing forward but rarely you know i don't know if i've ever thought about like this thing that i'm doing now whether it's with podcasting or muay thai whatever whatever you're working towards someone else is also dreaming this this is on someone else's vision board whether figuratively or literally and that demands that you respect the pursuit because there are other people that are wanting to do this that have the desire to do this and they're also part of your tribe too because the desires and our basic needs and wants are what connect us whether you realize it or not so I think that's I think that's really fucking cool. Like thinking about it like that, that you're you're giving something the respect as a pursuit, not just because of your own motivation, but because other people also want to do this. And maybe because of a physical limitation or something happens like that person can't. So in a way you're doing it for the tribe, like everyone to complete that is also adding to this overall journey that connects people together. Absolutely. And if you want to bring it all the way back to our conversation about working out and why you'd want to get through working out. Like there's people that can't and they just wish they can. They wish they could. Like there's people that their dream is to go for a run again, right? Who mm. can't use their legs. And so if you can, if you can flip on the, the gratitude switch whenever you're doing things that suck and be like, well, I'm not doing this because I have to, I'm doing this because I get to and because I want to and because I should get the opportunity and want the opportunity to use my legs and to use the the health of my body in order to stay in better shape um, whenever other people it's, it's just their dream. So something I, I have to ask you is when you go on a trip like this, a concern that I would have and I'm sure other people share this concern as well is that when you go on a trip across the country, whether it's biking or walking or hitchhiking, something to that extent where you're 
at the mercy of other people and situations, you may run into some shady people or, or shady situations. Not necessarily the danger from uh, nature or cars, but just like running into unstable people. Was there ever a point in your journey where you were in a situation where you're like, I don't think this is a good place to be or I'm, you know, this person's intentions aren't matching what they're saying. Like any situation where you were like, this is shady as fuck. Like we need to get out of here. Something where your, your spidey senses went off and you're like, fuck this. Like this is, uh, this is not good. You know, off the top of my head, I can't think of any particular person. There was one person that hung around the van a little bit too long and, you know, kind of wore out his welcome. And it was just like, we're getting a weird, a weird vibe from him. That was yeah. really the only one. Um, but there were a couple of times, like, for instance, with the route, um, it put us through some pretty sketchy places, um, you know, places that if you knew someone in the city, they're like, oh, you biked through there like yeah i you know we didn't really know we kind of had a sense of naivete to it um and biked through some pretty not so great places in like nashville and um la um those those places we probably shouldn't have biked through but you know i think we were protected almost divinely in a sense and directed um to where for the for almost the entirety of the ride we felt very safe we had really great experiences with police officers. Um, they would try and, you know, they were like, you can't sleep here. And we're like, oh. And they're like, but you can go sleep here. Like, let's let's lead you over there. Um, we had incredible experiences with the firefighters in Oklahoma. Uh, we actually got a fire fire truck escort into Hydro, Oklahoma, which was really, really cool. Oh, wow. Um, talk about massive imposter syndrome from me. Uh, being like, what did I possibly do to deserve this besides, you know, bike 1,500 miles across the country? Yeah. Um, yeah, which imposter syndrome is a, a whole nother topic. But um, we had a lot of really cool people help us. And the Elk City Fire Department also brought us in and cooked a steak and, um, you know, brought us to the local bike shop and let me pick out some gloves and some extra tubes and stuff like that and donated to the cause as well. So, you know, I would say we like from the perspective of, you know, humans are, um, at their nature, at their core bad. Um, absolutely not. And from what we experienced, humans are at their core and by nature good. And we experienced that across the country. And it was really cool to see all the support we got from complete strangers and people coming up and be like, Hey, do you want to park in our yard and plug this fan into the side of my house so that you can have a fan in the van? Cause we didn't have AC. Um, at night throughout the entire ride, yeah. uh, we had to, we had to turn the car on blast full, full blast AC and then like get in bed real quick and try and fall asleep before it got hot and we woke up sweating. Um, yeah. but it was, it was really cool to see how much people helped, um, all the way across. And I would say, you know, majority of the time there were a couple, a couple weird moments, but the majority of it was just so profoundly positive. Yeah, I, I think anyone who believes that human beings are not generally good at their core just do not travel enough. And and I think also the mainstream media does a lot to depict the extreme worst of people. If you if you're getting your idea 
of what it's like to travel across the country or travel to different places outside of the country based on what the media is telling to, then you're going to be you're going to be very pleasantly surprised when you get there. And I, I think a, I think a lot of people, not, not that they're not dangerous things that happen, of course, like there 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 are people out there who do terrible things and there are tragic things that happen at the hands of both people and forces of nature. But I suspect that a lot of people's desire to travel and experience things outside of their comfort zone of their geographical location where they've lived for a long time, I, I suspect a lot of that is a lot of that fire is put out by what the mainstream media, corporate media makes the world look like and how divided we are and how terrible things are happening all the time. And I experienced this firsthand when I went to Colombia because my only uh my my only depiction of Colombia was watching Narcos on Netflix and like learn, knowing some things about Pablo Escobar and I'm going to Colombia thinking like this is so this is going to be so dangerous and it's going to be you know fucking get have to stop uh pickpocketers or people trying to rob me every second and of course there are dangerous parts of Colombia but it, it couldn't have been a more pleasant experience. I've met some of the nicest, kindest people I've ever met traveling through Colombia, uh, Santa Marta, uh, Bogota, places in between, and some of the poorest remote places in South America, in in Colombia at least. And the my my concept of what Colombia looks like in United States pop culture was completely shattered by actually going there. And I wonder if, because, you know, that that may stop people. Like maybe if I was older or with the family or something or whatever, maybe I would not do that trip because that tension is building inside me from thinking about the depiction of Colombia rather than actually going there. But it, it's it's crazy. It, it, the, the, the dichotomy of it is crazy. So, I mean, I've experienced similar things where I I believe that most people are uh, good at their core from my experience. And it's uh, it's a shame sometimes how the media depicts people and generalizes in a way that shows just like the negative shit that happens. Because it, it's not only changing people's perspective of the world, but it may actually lead to the point where you're, you, you know, you're, you're taking actions and and doing things that other you otherwise wouldn't had the lens of the media been slightly different or slightly more favorable to a certain area of the world absolutely absolutely i mean you couldn't have, you couldn't have said it better like traveling yeah. people think they the traveling is you know also to um to acknowledge uh male the the privilege of being a male and you know females have a much different experience which is extremely unfortunate and i just wish that was not the case i wish that everyone had the the freedom to just you know go across the country solo and experience everything so there 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 are some bad people out there um you know you have to acknowledge evil and in order to also acknowledge good but um for i just wish that everyone could have the experience of um, being able to be in all of these new experiences across the world and experience these cultures and um, be able to really realize that, you know, at the, at the heart of it, um, while there is some, there is some outlier, um, that people are gen- genuinely good. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point that women definitely don't experience an equal level and possibility of danger when traveling, whether it's through this country or especially abroad. And when you run into different cultural norms as well, that can make things extremely dangerous for a woman who's traveling solo or even with a group of people if they get separated. So that that's definitely a good point to acknowledge. Absolutely. So... I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you what the come down was like because you mentioned at the beginning of the the conversation that you experienced a come down that may have been more challenging than the actual bike ride itself. So what what is the come down you were referring to, and how did you experience that? Incredible. Um, can I? Do you mind if I use the restroom really quick? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I actually, I'm gonna grab some uh, some more water as well. I'll I'll be right back. Power okay, of perfect. editing. So right, because yeah, I want to make I want to make sure that I'm like fully present for it. <laughs> perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we are we are back, and we we were talking about the the come down that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. So, what was that come down, and how did you experience that come down? Walk me through physical, emotional, spiritual, the the, the way that you uh, made it through the come down and what it was actually like. Okay. So essentially putting into perspective and allowing you to like really feel the end of the ride with me. Um, you ride for two months. So think about where you were two months ago and you start a bike ride. 69 days, that's how long it took, but um, two months and you start something and every single day you're riding between 50 and 90 miles um, across the country. And then at some point you get massively injured and you have a thousand miles left. And so every day is like, you know, we had, I want to say we had like 21 days left, um, something like that, 13 yeah. days, something. And it's like 13, 12 11, 10, nine days, eight days, mm. seven days. And every day you're like kind of, you know, get to a certain point where you're, you've been trying not to count down the days to the end. <clears throat> but at this point, you're getting quite excited to see your friends and family. You've spent two months away from your girlfriend, your parents, your best friends, your roommates, you know, all those people. And they're all going to be at the end. Um, not to mention this, feeling that you're daydreaming about about getting to another ocean you know you started on the other side of the continent the atlantic ocean you came out of the ocean mm -hmm. super playful and super excited but also very nervous and and you've built up this wisdom over time of of the ride and you would feel like you've changed the person as well and you're just excited to get to the pacific ocean the sister ocean of the atlantic and to have that moment with the last 20 feet of continent, you know? And so you have daydreamed and fantasized about this moment getting there and, and what it's going to be like and the epiphany you're going to have and, you know, what the people are going to feel like and just everything about it. And so you show up in Santa Monica and I had five other people um, come to ride the last, uh, the last 40, the last day with me. Um, mm. One of them was a complete stranger. 
uh, Tanya, uh, who is Caesar, I met him the day before. He rode with me into San Bernardino. And then, so he came for the last day. And then Tanya, um, who rode with me in Tennessee, also came to ride with me at the end. And then my one of my mentors, Shay, and then um, Maggie and Morgan joined for the last um, last like two or three miles down the beach on mm. bike cruisers. So it was really cool. And then so you're you're riding down the beach and you haven't seen this Ferris wheel, this iconic Ferris wheel pier in a couple years. Um, I believe since I was on that pier talking about or speaking about the moment from uh, earlier in the podcast mm. and you're getting like, you're just like, what is going on? This is so surreal. And you show up and there's all these people there and they're all like clapping and screaming your name. And suddenly you're overwhelmed. You didn't plan to feel this way. Um, you hadn't thought that you'd be spending two months alone in your head, right? You mm. spend all day on the bike alone in your head you have Patrick, um, but you know, there's a lot of silent communication there. And so you've essentially spent the whole summer with one person. And now there's 20 plus people there waiting for you, asking you all these questions and you're overwhelmed. And you're like, wow, you're very surprised by that emotion, first of all. And then mm. you, everyone walks to the ocean and I love um, Davis's mom, Mama J, that's what I call her. She brought champagne bottles. Um, thinking we would yeah. want to pop them. And I, they were like, here's the champagne bottle. Like, go in the ocean and pop it. And I'm like, that's not what this moment looked like for me. Um, mm. it, 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 does, it doesn't involve champagne bottles. Um, but y'all are welcome to, if you'd like. But like, it's not, it's not, it's, that's not what this moment looked like. So I'm attached to the story, right? And so I'm, I'm standing there and there's so many people around me and they're like waiting to see what I do next. And there's, there's this last, like the waves are crashing on the beach and there's way more people than I envisioned, like way more strangers. You know, it's Santa Monica in the middle of the summer. Like there's tons of tourists there um, and they were yeah. in my vision. And so I'm standing there and I've got my hands on my head like this and I'm looking into the, the Pacific Ocean. I'm really like this epiphany that I was hoping for, like this, this aha moment about life, about the journey, about, about anything like i'm just i'm staring trying so hard to force this epiphany to happen with this last 20 feet of continent before the waves begin to lap and mm. just like really trying to take this moment in and i briefly hear one of my friends behind me go to one of the, one of my other friends well this is anticlimactic and i'm like it is I guess it is. Yeah. I guess this is anticlimactic, you know, because this isn't the climax. <laughs> this yeah. is not, this yeah. is not the climax. But I'm like trying to have this moment and yeah, it's like shut it. Shut, it's like shut the hell up, dude. Stop ruining this for me. <laughs> Everybody, stop! Like this is this is like so such a profound moment. Like let me take this in. Like what did you want me to? What did you expect? You know. But also like have some grace with other people. Like of course they expected. They've been waiting for this moment. They've been cheering me on all summer. So like I don't hold it against them. Like it's totally fair. So I'm I'm looking into the ocean. I'm like really trying to really trying to have this moment. And it doesn't come. And it doesn't come. And then Patrick looks at me and he's like, dude, like come on. And I'm like, you're right. And so he just sprints, and I sprint with him. And then Davis follows me, and the whole group sprints in, and we like run as far as we can into the ocean, and then fall in. And like, you know, everyone's like splashing each other and my old, my roommate and friend, like one of my best friends comes over and tag tackles me into the ocean. And it's just like this, this cool moment. 
And we got to spend the next two days in California, just like looking at the Pacific Ocean, not really like mm. interacting with it a whole lot. And then we drove home and I was like, I like that was I needed more time. I, I needed more time with the end. I needed more time with the destination, um, with like the Pacific Ocean to be able to enjoy it because it really felt like it was almost transactional. Like, OK, we did it. Yeah. See ya. And now we're going back and we're turning the van in and it's straight back to routine of like normal life and all of the you things. You wish you that, had more time to just like sit in it and take yeah, it in at the end like, if you were to do it again. Bask, bask in it, like allow yourself a week yeah. to like come down to allow everything to settle in. Like we got there and immediately turned around in the journey and like felt it was over and we turned the van in and, and I started, I went to work. I got in, I got back on Thursday, turned the van on Friday and started working on Monday. You know, it was like a quick, was turnaround. A quick turnaround. It was a massive yeah. culture shock. And then after I, first of all, I got this job because I knew I needed something to do. Like I needed something else to show up for other than myself. Mm. Um, Cause I've been working freelance for the past like two and a half, three years and working for myself. And I couldn't spend all that time in my head after spending all that time in my head all summer. And so I got this job at the Ocean Lab, which is incredible. Um, it's a place in Austin with float cabins, cold exposure, and uh, infrared saunas. And wow. that turned out to be crucial to my processing of the entire experience. Um, but I started work and then I come back to a relationship as well. And I'm expected to show up as the exact same person that I was whenever I left. Um, you know, prioritizing the relationship and, and not really thinking about, you know, all this processing that I have to do. And then also I spent the whole summer in survival mode of, you know, thinking about shelter, food, and water, like I said, like the basic fundamental, um, survival, um, things. And now I'm back to, all right, answer your emails, answer your text messages, um, start editing this documentary, um, go to the gym, eat right, cook. Um, do all these things that, you know, you know how to do and you would never forget how to do, but going straight from one extreme to another was just like, it was, it was crazy. And so I kind of st stooped into this partial depression where I had, um, a lack of clarity. Um, you know, every day for the ride, it was like, there was a very distinct goal. It was like, we finished the bike ride for the day that's our daily goal. And our overall goal is to get to Santa Monica on August 14th. And you have this goal constantly in the back of your head. And it's very easy to just be like, okay, yes, that's the goal. But now it's like, I'm doing all of these things and adding this documentary. Like, what am I supposed to do here? I'm off, I'm working, I'm in a relationship. I'm supposed to keep up with my friends. And now there's no clear sense of purpose. And so I had to really work to find that. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that's a, a daily thing that I'm still doing um, as, as we speak right now. But the big thing being that like my mental health was, was suffering and I expected mm. to have that aha moment. And it, it was really kind of eerie to not have an epiphany, you know, for whatever reason, I, I wanted that epiphany and I didn't get it. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it on the last day. I didn't get it a week later. Um, you know, I began reflecting and I was squeegeeing floors at the ocean lab, cleaning cabins and folding towels. And I still didn't get it. And eventually I got it. And that was whenever my healing journey really began. And it was the epiphany about not having an epiphany. This, this aha moment was 
you weren't supposed to have an epiphany at the Pacific Ocean on the last day. And you might ask, mm. well, why not? Because I expected for some reason all of the change to happen in the last day. In the last 40 miles of a 2,886-mile bike ride, I expected all of it, all of the change to happen. And in all actuality, I hadn't actually zoomed out at a map of the entire country and been like, Santa Monica is here. The Outer Banks is here. Who was I in the Outer Banks? And who was I whenever I finished? Mm. All of those changes happened in tiny increments across the entire country with every single person that I met, every conversation that I had, every single trial and tribulation that I was victorious through, every single defining moment in my friendships with Patrick and Davis where they helped me and where I helped them. And all of those things slowly added up to the person that I was in the last day. And for some reason, I expected to look into the ocean and have this epiphany about life and everything happens right then. And what I call that is a destination mentality. It's this sense that everything you're looking for in life, you're going to find at the peaks. And in reality, this, this, this epiphany or this aha moment that I had over the course of months after the ride was destination mentality is the worst way to live. And so I adopted this new thing from this and it's called the resilience mentality. It's the combination of not just the peaks, but the valleys. And it's the challenge of getting better at getting back up after each peak, because there is going to be a fall after every big moment in your life. It can't continually get better. At some point, it's like, even if it's still good, it's not going to be as good. And so there's going to be this contrast within your life where you're like, well, it'll never be as good as it was in 2016. Like you still hear, hear people say that. It's like, well, if you have that perspective, then it probably won't be. But you can mm. work your life to, to, to get better, to enjoy the small moments. And we had this moment when we had this moment in the Grand Canyon, we'd run out of water and my friends crawling the last, you know, 200 yards out of the Grand Canyon. We, that's whenever we had the initial realization that life's not just about the highs. It's about the lows. It's the, it's the contrast in your life that actually holds the beauty. It's not the singular thing. It's the difference between the two that holds that beauty. And so it's, it's really allowing yourself to be present, not just in, oh, well, whenever I get there, I'll be happy. It's a matter of, well, right now I'm going through this tough time, but I'm learning a lot. And I think that's going to allow me to enjoy the rest of my life just a little bit better. It's going to, it's going to have this contrast, you know, losing my uncle is a low, um, losing my uncle to cancer and my dad's only brother is a low. But if I can look at this in a specific way of like, what can this teach me? You know, is this going to allow me to look at death a little bit differently? Is this going to allow me to look at the current relationships I have with a little more gratitude of like, I could lose this at any point. Is this going to change the relationship that I have with my dad and make us closer? And it has. Like I can look at the, these lows as an opportunity to grow through them so that that next high is like, I can, I, can, I can stay there and I can truly appreciate it. And so it's this journey of life that I had this realization about and the way that I approach it. And everything is not always going to be sunshine and rainbows and I don't want it to be. How long after the bike ride and, and what were you doing when you had the epiphany of no epiphany? I was floating. <laughs> I was, uh, I don't know if, any, if you're familiar tank. with floating. 
yeah, I was, I, yeah. I wouldn't say I was, it was in the tank that I was like, boom, there's the epiphany, but I had been floating a lot. Um, and alongside that, I had just started consistently cold plunging, um, like cold exposure. So 40 degree water for three plus minutes um, at a time, multiple times a week, stacking that on top of itself. Um, which has been proven to incre- increase your baseline dopamine levels. And so mm. if you can increase your dopamine levels, it increases your motivation, it increases your discipline, all of that good stuff too. And so it was it was getting everything firing again. Um, and I was mm. able to think creatively in a space that was like, you know, I'm here to process something. It, it is something that requires processing. It was a massive thing that, that we decided to undertake. Um, and some crazy stuff happened out there on the road and it was a a really cool story that we got to tell. And now we're just back in society. So like, yeah, it's going to take some time to implement this and I should give myself at least the grace, um, to, you know, like not expect so much of myself for at least as long as I was gone. So Mm. 69 days, we were gone, give myself 69 days before I start really being like, okay, well maybe I should. Maybe I should go to the gym today. You know, like maybe yeah. even though I don't want to, maybe I should. Cause I would go to the gym and I'd be like, I'm going to be back in this routine. And then it would be like the next week I have no motivation at all. And so I was burning myself out. I had such a short fuse. Um, and so I slowly started yeah. learning that and building it again. It, it, that's such a, a beautiful and useful insight because there, there's so many times in my own life where I feel the power of the moment slipping away because I'm thinking about the way that I should feel or the story that I told myself what needs to be the overarching emotion of this moment and when I don't feel it all I think about is well why am I not feeling it why why am I not crying when I should be crying why am I not smiling and happy and why is this not the the thing that I thought this was going to be this overwhelming sense of whatever you expected. And a lot of times it just, it it does not happen. And in that case, it, it sounds like, it sounds like the epiphany of no epiphany, whatever you want to call it is, uh, is more fulfilling than the, what you were expecting to feel at the end because you can you can tap into the the epiphany of no epiphany at any moment like just being like the the reason is this right now rather than if you felt a certain way after a 3000 mile bike ride and you want to feel that way again you need that sort of physical exertion to tap into it but it it sounds like what you experienced eventually is actually better than what you initially expected to experience and that's the biggest takeaway is like you have this expectation we all have these expectations and if we would just allow ourselves to not have expectations normally we're pleasantly surprised normally it's better than what we could imagine if we keep moving forwards if we get through the mental health struggles um you know you you want it to get better but oftentimes you never expect it to be as good as it ends up being so allow your allow yourself and your story that how how long would you say it took your baseline level of feeling good and dopamine stores to the storage to return to what it felt like uh pre-bike ride or, or maybe just an, a normal sense of things being back to baseline how long would you say that took well i would say there was also a little bit of a a tumbling effect that happened afterwards like for instance i finished the bike ride i went into like a 
a, a little bit of a lack of clarity phase um, that led to a breakup, which, you know, like that can tumble as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it took a couple months of like just thinking and, and really having to show up for myself, um, show up in the gym, you know, as much as I can until I can't. And then, you know, get in the cold plunge um, and do that. But I would say finally in December, Patrick and I told ourselves that we were going to go surfing um, as a reward for this bike ride. I bought this mm. surf, surf package for 50% off at this place called Mazada um, Anti-Resort in El Salvador like two years ago and like hadn't used it. And so we scheduled it for afterwards and we ended up going midway through December and like we all I really wanted to do um, was spend time with the ocean after the bike ride. Like I just wanted to, I wanted to sit in the Pacific Ocean and just like surf and enjoy it and just sit in the waves. And we didn't really get that. And so we were like, how can we return to that sense of what we wanted? Um, so we went mm. surfing in El Salvador and it was just me and Pat and Davis and Jack. And so it was the same group from the bike trip. And we're just sitting in the waves after we've been pummeled by waves all day because we don't know how to surf fully well yet you know like we're learning mm. uh, we're, we're throwing ourselves in to learn by doing and we're sitting in the waves and just being like this is one of those moments this is one of those key core memories in your life where it's like the sun's glistening at sunset and you're waiting to catch a wave and like you catch one wave one really good wave all week and you're just like, super mm. super excited about it and so we were like this is this is definitely the turning of the page this is this is the end of one book and the beginning of the next is this trip. And everything mm. that we've done behind us has been preparation for, you know, what we're about to undertake and the impact we want to make on the world um, with these cards, with this, with this philosophy, with this brand. Um, we want to get this out to people so that they can live more fulfilling lives. It's not about happiness. It's about fulfillment. You know, it's about being content with the life you're living and writing your own story. And so that was whenever I feel like the tides really started to change for me. And then New Year's happened and I spent New Year's in a float tank. Like New Year's Eve, I got in at 11.58 by myself. Um, on New Year's Eve, most people want to spend that with other, pe other people. And for me, I was like instraquilinius inventor. Like, where do I least want to look? It's like spending more time yeah. by myself. And so these past couple months have been a, a period of a lot of alone time. Um, I even told Patrick the other day, I was like, I'm feeling kind of lonely. But I know this is a period of my life where I'm going through a pretty big change and we're working really, really hard to get this message out to the world so that other people can benefit from it. And, you know, while every day isn't happy, it's you can't expect things to always be happy, but every day is always fulfilling. And I have this sense of clarity and direction right now that I didn't have after the ride that's super, super important and crucial to, you know, my life and living it. So I would say that after the surf trips, whenever everything really started to change and then new years, whenever the new year rolled around, everything really started yeah. to go that way. There's uh there's something intensely savage about spending New Year's, one of the most intense party times around the world, in the silence and stillness of a float tank. I'm just thinking about <laughs> every everyone popping bottles around you, like I love fucking New Year's party. I love getting after it and celebrating with friends. But there's also, I'm just imagining in being inside a float tank and the entire world is partying around you and you're just kind of sitting there at peace and being like, yeah, this is, this is my New Year's. This is it. Let me, let me paint that picture a little bit more for you as well. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I'm getting in at 11.58, right? I'm really hurrying because I want to get in before New Year's and then get out after New Year's, right? So I'm hurrying to get in. It's 11.58, and I can hear fireworks going off because it's close to downtown, close to UT campus. Wow. And I can hear fireworks going off, and so I'm like, I got to get in. And so I get in, and then right before New Year's starts, I didn't float in silence. I floated to the Ben Bomer Cappadocia set, which is mm. a a circle set in a hot air balloon of love Cappadocia Turkey. And yes. it's my favorite it's my favorite set of all time. I've literally listened to it every single day in its entirety since the new year. Wow. It, I play it at every work, single it day. Work every single day, yeah. maybe multiple times a day. It's how I start my day. It's how it's how I channel that feeling of getting into the float tank on New Year's Day. Um, it's it's how I start my my power hour work. Um, in the morning because there's no lyrics to it. It makes me feel super motivated um, after that experience. And so that's what I listened to. And then I came out and I felt like a new person. I needed to channel that, you know, symbolic energy yeah. of like the, the death or rebirth to like really start this new chapter. What is the name of the artist again? I'm going to check it out. I'm always looking for a new playlist for focus. It's Ben Bomer, B-O-H-M-E-R. Um, and I, he's my favorite artist. Um, I found it right after the surf trip and then I started listening to it all the time. And then I found out that he was on the float, the float cabins. Um, he was on the wow. soundtrack list and after I'd already started obsessing over the set. And then I was like, you know, I'm feeling called to spend new years in this float cabin for whatever reason. And then I looked at the soundtracks and I found this and I was like, that's the sign. Like I'm supposed to start with my favorite music by myself um, because I, you know, would normally have gone to a party with a ton of people I didn't know and, you know, tried to grab some girl for New Year's at 12 o'clock um, to, you know, yeah. have a New Year's kiss. So I don't feel alone in my head, but I'm like, how can I actually just be comfortable with it? How can I embrace this, this time in my life? And so I started it with Ben Bomer. <laughs> Yeah. And, and for people that aren't familiar with Circle, C-E-R-C-L-E, it is an incredible channel that features performance from electronic artists all over the world and these iconic architectural and natural landmarks. Like it's, it's, I, I, I subscribe to the channel during, uh, or subscribe to the, the email list of Circle during quarantine because I immediately knew once I saw the first circle set that I needed to go to a live performance. And I know they announce it soon before and then you can buy tickets and it's literally all over the globe. Like they do it in deserts, they do it in churches, they do it on salt pillars. Like it's one of the coolest things, probably the coolest live music performance and calling a performance is underwhelming like you have to definitely go check out <laughs> yeah. the the channel like i can't imagine being at one of these in person and it, it that's one of the really cool things that arose from quarantine as well because they were like oh we can't have live music we have to do live performances we have to do yeah ones that are going to keep people entertained and so they're doing it on like the great pyramids of egypt or in a hot air balloon in turkey or on Grand Lake in Colorado on a pontoon boat for Lane 8, you know? Yeah. Um, really, really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on the podcast. This has been an absolute fucking blast. And 
before you go, I wanted to give you a chance to plug everything where people can go check out your Instagram, Forwards Movement website, upcoming documentary, anything where people can follow along for the journey. Okay. So essentially, we just started selling these cards. Um, these cards, it's a normal deck of playing cards, you know, 54 cards, four suits, two jokers. Um, and you can play any card game you have ever learned with these. It's just a different suit. And they're $28 online. You can get a discount if you give us your um, email. So you can hop on our email list. $28 sounds like a lot of money for a deck of cards. And I promise you that is if it's just a deck of cards, but also contained within these 54 pieces of paper is your entire life story from your childhood to your adolescence to the current moment, all the way through what you want the ending of your story to look like. So as far as investing in your life story and learning the life story of not just yourself, but your friends, your family, your lover, and even strangers, I promise it's an investment that we are super glad we made. And that's why we want to get it out to the whole world. Um, so forwardsmovement.com, F-O-U-R-W-A-R-D-S, um, is when it, where you can find these cards. Um, we would love for you to share them with the world as well. And then with the documentary, the name of the documentary, Oh yeah, the, uh, lost you there for a sec. The, <laughs> so the, the documentary, documentary the everything the documentary about the cards is going to be called Into the up. Wind. The documentary um, cut a up. little play on words with Into the Wild. Um, and the reason it's Into the Wind is because we were constantly riding Into the Wind all the way across the country, something we didn't know or mean to do. Um, but it turned out working in our benefit as mental health also feels like riding Into the Wind. Um, so whenever we release that here in the next my goal is to have it edited um, before we leave for our next trip in August and sent off to a production team. I really want to make this massively available to everyone. So having it on some sort of viewing platform like Netflix or Amazon or any of those. So if you are involved with any of those companies and you want to help us make that connection, uh, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Um, I, my Instagram is Joe Lindley 16. Um, and we are also going to start some episodes on my YouTube channel, uh, which is also Joe Lindley 16 as well as forwards as well. So follow me to keep up with the journey. Um, thank you so much for having me on here, Zach. I, this has been the best podcast. You have been such an incredible, uh, producer for this and asking all the right questions. So I thank you for you know, bringing all this magic out. Um, it's been such a cool experience to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I also wanted to just give a quick shout out to to Dave Robinson for making the connection. And I know that we will inevitably cross paths in person. And, you know, again, Dave, uh, thank you for showing me joe digitally and we got to link up for this awesome uh remote podcast platform and so looking forward to to meeting you in person when we do cross paths and again everything that joe talked about will be linked in the podcast description wherever you're listening to this watching this definitely go fucking check it out um not only an incredible not only incredible story and product but you're also supporting an independent creator like Joe, who is making this his life's mission. So it, it, it's always, uh, I, I like to always put my my time, energy, and money towards 
the people that are actually making shit and doing shit. So this is definitely an opportunity to do that for people listening. And uh, yeah, Netflix, hit up Joe. Amazon, hit up Joe. Fucking get after it. Can't wait to see this documentary. Yeah.